Welcome back, everybody, to the Ones Ready Team Room. Man, we got a lot of exciting stuff. So uh, first of all, we want to we want to give you a, a little, hey, how you doing? A little, hey, we have a new partner, and that new partner is BeaverFit. So go over to BeaverFitUSA.com. And what I want you to go check out is the Gray Man Gear line. So if you're looking, remember, physical fitness is your first and your last line of defense. It doesn't matter how good you shoot. It doesn't matter what technical gear you have on your back. It doesn't matter how smart you are. If you're not fit, you are going to die. So go to BeaverFit. They have been helping folks out in the military first responder space forever. They started off in the UK. They've got a great presence over here. You may have seen some of their Connex style gyms where they can just pop up a gym out in the middle of nowhere. They've got pull-away kits, but I want y'all to focus on the gray man gear. This is individual fitness equipment, everything from sandbags to barbells, deadlift platforms, hex bars, everything that you could possibly need to absolutely get after it in a bare bones sort of environment. Are you going somewhere with no gym? Are you just out in the middle of Montana where you don't have anything around you except for what looks to be Yellowstone? Go to beaversitfit.com, <laughs> beaverfitusa.com and check out their gray man gear. And of course, use our code ones ready at checkout. That'd be super dope. Need a kettlebell? Ones ready code. BeaverFitUSA.com, that gray man gear section over there. So huge, uh, huge opportunity with, with BeaverFit. Go show them some love. They're a great organization. We know the people personally, and they're really getting after it for the military and first responder community. So first of all, to BeaverFit, thanks very much. BeaverFitUSA.com. Use code ones ready at checkout. Yeah, for sure. And uh, also, like, to, to caveat on that, like, great, great dudes over there. Like, we know some of the guys personally, and then, obviously getting introduced to Dan. So appreciate all that. And I'm looking forward to perusing the site, if you will, and uh, checking Ooh. some stuff out. Ooh, perusing. You and me both. Good also, dudes. the other people that you need to peruse is eberlystock.com. They've got the mod modular gear. They've got hunting, uh, law enforcement, military, tech apparel, um, and just overall great dudes. I mean, we met up with them at SHOT Show, uh, Mike McBride and all that kind of good stuff. So, Great people. Um, looking forward to working with them even more in the future. So check them out. Promo code OR10. That is OR10, eberlystock.com. Get yourself a discount. Yeah. We, we got to get Mike back Moving on this on. thing, too. We keep saying we got to get Mike on from Eberlystock, and then we never figured out. So yeah. we're going to you know, figure that one out. The thing is, Mike can speak for his company, whereas I think on this episode coming up, there are certain people that can't speak or are not speaking on behalf of their company, right? Did you try mm -hmm. to hit me with a segue in the pre-roll, my guy? Yeah, yeah dude. <laughs> Thanks, Seek Grant. A segue. Oh so this God. a segue. So this one has been a long time in the making, folks, and for a lot of different reasons, you'll understand why. So first of all, it's longer than our normal format, but just buckle in. We're not going to break it up. It's deserving to hear the whole story. So longtime friends, pararescue team leaders, uh, Sean and Chris. Sean was the SEL of HKIA during the entire retrograde. And then the, you know, a lot of the events that happened as, as we got out of HKIA in 2021, Chris was one of the team leaders, right? I want to remind everybody, they're not speaking in any sort of capacity due to their military service, their private citizens, the views that they express are their own and theirs only. They don't represent any larger entity. They don't represent the DOD in any way. They don't represent the military. Again, they're speaking on their own time on their own behalf with us here at One's Ready as we always do. So as you guys get ready to get into this episode, there was a lot of goodness that happened and we wanted to get this story out because you may or may not know, pararescue and combat rescue officers have played a part in every single large major combat operation since they were, in, since they were made essentially since 1943, you just didn't hear about it. This is no different. 
H Kaya was a, a very emotional event for a lot of us coming out of the end of GWAT and Sean and Chris sat down and were gracious enough to share their experience and some of the amazing things that they did in support of Operation Allies Refuge, which is a larger operation uh, of the H Kaya uh, JTE. So buckle up, put your headphones in for this long run, make sure to hit that subscribe button and uh, thanks for coming out. This one's a good one. Thanks to everybody, and uh, especially thanks to Sean and Chris for supporting this one. Hope you guys enjoyed sure. it. As you just heard the pre-roll, we got Chris, we've got Sean. We're going to talk about some stuff. So I want to turn it over to you first, Chris. Go ahead and just tell us about who you are. Give us a little bit of background. Yeah, so um, name's Chris. Um, I'm a master sergeant at the 48th currently. Um, been in roughly 15 years. Actually just hit 15 years in January. Uh, multiple assignments. I'm out of the pipe in 2010, went to Vegas for almost four years. From there, went to Oki, the ST side, for about two. Then we crossed paths again, actually, at the schoolhouse. We did. Went to the Prince course. I got the extended long tour, so about four and a half years there. Now I'm coming up about three at the 48th and PCSing this month. So. Nice. Sean, what about you, man? Uh, so Senior Master Sergeant Sean Hurley, uh, currently working as the Senior Enlisted Leader at the Air Force Parachute Team. Unicorn of a job, this one, but it's... Not a bad gig. Yeah, been, Not a bad gig. Been great so far. Um, but uh, I started off my career in the Army. I enlisted when I was 17 in 2000 as an uh, airborne infantryman. Primarily did um, infantry support to special operations units. I was assigned to uh, Bravo Company, 2nd Battalion, 20th Special Forces Group in Maryland for a while, and then finished my career at a um, just a regular infantry unit there in Maryland. But, well, I did my first deployment to Afghanistan in 2003 as a um, uh, ODB team member. Um Met some PJs at K2, very quickly realized that uh, I wanted to do that. So kind of changed. <laughs> that seems like a yeah. way, that seems like a way better gig yeah. than what you were doing. Oh, right? man. Like very, you know, I, I had an idea in my, my mind about being an SF guy, but when I met these PJs at K2, I was like, Dude, these guys are happy. They're, they're all like jacked and tan. Like everybody wants to be like, who are these guys? Like, I want to be one of them. Um, yeah, right. Dudes yeah. wanted to be them. Girls wanted to be with them, all that stuff. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, graduated from college, uh, got out of the army, both in 2006, um, cross-trained into Paris in 2007. That's where we first met, got out of the pipeline yeah. in 09, um, started off my career as a guy in the New York team, um, got picked up for the short course at the two, four, uh, as a senior airman. Made my way to the 48th, made my way back to um, the 24th for a bit, and then made my way back to Tucson, uh, working for the four, uh, the 48th and the 563rd OSS. And now I'm here at the Air Force Academy working for the parachute team. Nice. So, I mean, obviously, as, as everybody is tracking at this point, because they saw the thumbnail and they saw what the title is, like, we're here to talk about HKIA. So we've seen a ton of books come out and then ironically enough, like the three of us were just laughing on the group text today, you know, Jocko had a guest on and he was talking about it and, you know, believe it or not, somebody, somebody that we know really well, got a, a whole bunch of shout outs uh, <laughs> for some things that they did. And, and we thought it was ironic that that's happening. But as we look at this entire event, 
like things don't just happen in the course of, of a day. There's a considerable backstory to all this stuff. And I'd really like to start looking at that and figuring out like where, where all this stuff started. So, you know, Chris, I'll, I'll start with you and, and the, the lead up and your pre-deployment training and all that other stuff. Can you kind of walk us through what that, was it a normal pre-deployment training where you guys just tasked to go do some stuff? Like what, 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 what did that look like? Um, from the beginning stages, um, I just showed up to the 48th, um, flight three. Um, so at first we were unsure if flight two or flight three was actually going to take the tasking. Eventually found out that we were going to get to Afghanistan versus the Jordan tasking. Um, everything was pretty normal leading up. Then we started kind of hearing talks about the retrograde. Um, and that kind of throwed some uncertainty into the mix. However, as far as like the training cycle goes, um, the currencies, the progression, um, the FMPs, the lead up, the pack out, everything was pretty much normal. Um, it was going to be a typical Bagram rotation. I'm sure any PJ that's been in PJ for a minute spent some time at Bagram and uh, drawn some ball there, left some art behind or whatever. But nonetheless, uh, that's what we're looking at. And, um, Things kind of started to change as we were going out the door. Um, yeah. There was one point where they talked about essentially the retrograde was so damn efficient and that they were talking about keeping dudes in place and they just stayed a little longer instead of ripping us in. But ultimately, we ended up kind of ripping in, um, not to a complete unknown, but unknown timeline. So it could have been. Yeah. You know, the typical four could have been two weeks. We didn't really know. Right. And to frame to frame this for everybody that's that's keeping along, and we're trying to do this as chronologically as possible. Basically, in November 17th of 2020, the U.S. announced that there was going to be a troop withdrawal, right? So the, a couple of days before President Biden was elected and started his transition into his presidency, we announced that we're going to, hey, on the anniversary of 9-11, we're going to be completely out of Afghanistan, the 20-year anniversary. So that kicked off an entire chain of events. Up till uh, about April 14th, 2021, President Biden uh, then made his formal announcement, like, no kidding, on 9-11, we are going to be out. And that started essentially the process for this formal retrograde that we're talking about. So there's a whole lot of things that we're going to go over that ended up affecting both Sean and Chris when they were on the ground, like outstations closing down and support drying up and having a whole bunch of other second and third order effects to, to this entire thing. But Sean, as you put yourself in that mindset where you're also getting ready to go, where did where did you find yourself during this time when you're starting to get ready to step out the door? So it's interesting. At the time, I had uh, I had just um, bumped over to the 563rd OSS to be the senior enlisted leader over at that squadron. And previously, when I was at the 48th, I was the I was the flight chief um, on Chris's team. I just hadn't been there on the team for um, you know for a, a probably a year and a half or so but you know working over at the oss i was doing oss things like i really wasn't doing a whole lot of pj things so sure. you know to me like they you know the ask came where they just needed another guy with some more experience to go be a part of the command team um so you know i, I worked a little bit with the team leading up to it but not much like went out for uh, i think the majority of like the um you know, like our final battle problem, like final, like uh, validation exercise spin up to like function in that SEL and um, get a couple reps in as a team leader. But 
you know, really, I think what they were looking for was somebody to help manage the team from a C2 perspective. And that's where I kind of fit into the mix. Okay. What other challenges did you foresee as you, as you were going in? Like, did you have a good idea of, Hey, this is, this is what we're going to do. It's a well-defined task. I'm going to fill in for this specific role. How did you feel training up and getting ready to go? You know, it was, it was kind of ambiguous. Like the, all of the chatter surrounding it was that it was going to be a quick deployment. It was, you know, I think yep. the, the group chief at one point was like, Hey dude, like I'll see you in like three or four weeks. This is going to be, you know, this is going to be like a pretty easy kill for you guys, but just be safe, go out there, do what you're there to do. And, you know, hopefully see you soon. So we, I think we, from experience, I went in there with, the mindset to kind of expect the worst at Bagram. Right. We certainly, yep. we certainly weren't expecting to relocate to H Kaya. Um, but I think we were, we were doing the best that we could to be prepared for all circumstances. Right. How many times have the three of us gotten a report and then shown up on scene and had it be a, like 180 degrees out? Steve Nesbitt and I were yeah. talking about this, like, oh, hey, no problem. There's like one injury. It's really not that bad. And you show up and there's like 10 people and they're all injured really, really badly. So, you know, it's a, a fool me once, shame on me sort of thing is, you know, I'm sure that spidey sense for you as a team leader in the back of your head, just being like, oh, OK, this is going to be, you know, what do we say in Mogadishu? Hey man, you don't need to bring all that stuff. Don't, don't bring the back plate. You're not even going to be out. Like just bring bullets. You'll be all right. And that turned out to, to be what it is. So I, I can understand how that must've been one of those things where you're like, uh, is it really going to be this, uh, this clean? Um, you know, for me, I was, I was on another continent. So I was on the African continent getting, you know, cleaning up one of my deployments as well. We had been there for a long time and I happen to know the team that was already at Bagram that were in charge of air, airfield operations and doing some other stuff that, that was over there. So it was a weird thing where, you know, the three of us disassociated, we're all kind of in the same circles, me watching from afar and talking to, you know, some of my, you know, close friends that were, uh, you know, over there on the ST side that were doing some of the, the airfield control and, and stuff like that. So it's a weird thing that the air force is small. Pararescue is even smaller and the soft, you know, the soft communities are, are pretty small. So, to put all these timelines together, it's, it's a crazy thing. It's like a Tarantino movie where everybody meets up at the end and, you know, has, has a beer and they tell all these crazy stories and the, and the timelines you stole um, get together. By the way, I did what now? Stole that analogy from me. That's okay. <laughs> 100% tear the Tarantino movie or what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. So you guys are getting ready to go. Um, obviously the spidey sense is, you know, kind of tingling in the back of your heads. And as we keep moving through this timeline here, so the outstations begin to start closing down and then some other really, really bad things start happening. So right about May, so from April 14th is when we kind of announce, hey, we're going to be out by 2021, you know, September 11th on the 20 year anniversary. May 4th, the Taliban starts to take huge advances down in Helmand. Um, I was actually the PJ that was on I, just by luck of the draw. I was the dude that shut down the rescue operations in Helmand. Um, and then ended up back at Bagram probably four years later. Uh, and we were actually having discussions about two airfields. And these two airfields are going to are gonna come up later. We were going to go take back Conduz. We ended up doing that. So we ended up running operations out of Conduz for a huge multinational event that we did in 2015. But the other one that we were talking about that luckily we didn't have to mission plan for was we were talking about going back and taking Bastion that we had owned before down in the Sangin and down in Helmand. And starting in May... The Wild West, it was the Sangin River Valley and the Tangy River Valley and Hellman, you know, as, as a whole, 
that started to fall pretty quickly. How did that change your calculus as you guys were were figuring out what it is that you were supposed to do? And what, what was it like to hear that news, Chris? I guess for us, um, once we realized we were going, we kind of, the information kind of stopped flowing. Yeah, there was open source, but we were just kind of like get in place mode. Um, based off of like my best recollection percentages at that point, I think when we showed up, we were probably about 60% closed down and the Taliban had taken about 30 to 40% of the country back, made MSRs, um, just a wag. And then as we were going, you know, once we were getting heads on beds, uh, downloading gear, um, getting up on alert, getting handovers, that first two weeks, everybody was just kind of singularly focused on that and everything else was kind of in the background. Yeah, we're noticing they're taking more provinces. Hey, more things are shutting down. But at the 83rd from the changeover, we were just kind of focused on that, getting that hand slap so they could get out the door. Um, so really that first three weeks, you know, we're doing fan flights, um, doing checks, PCIs, um, just getting everything together to, you know, do what we've been doing for 20 years, essentially. Um, but after that, you know, once my left, um, and just to kind of, you know, make the audience understand, I think at that point in time, once they left, it was kind of a day-to-day change. Then later on, it was at times like hour to hour, especially like in the later days of HKS. So um, a lot of unknowns. Um, I, I think, Again, going back to saying how amazingly efficient, like we shut down this 20-year theater. Also, with shutting out theater, there was a lot of um, key people that were giving intent. Then when that dried up, um, a lot of people were searching for the right next step. Ultimately, we started, you know, having to use our best judgment because there wasn't anyone to ask, hey, you know, permission or give us authority to do such. So, um, and I think Sean could kind of pick up from here about, um, the comms that were coming in to the, to the head shed, you know, then I was just essentially as the team sergeant, I was just digesting it and regurgitating it to the team for tasks, but uh, he could sure. Well, it's, you know, two things that I want to hit on there is like, you know, the turnover is, a, is a, it's almost a ritualistic process. Like the way that you turn over and the way that you take, you know, alert from another team, every team leader, you know, does it differently. And you, you phrased it perfectly. Like you're, you're singularly focused on that. Like the world is, can be blowing up around you. And you're like, listen, there's a checklist of items that we got to get through. I got to get dudes on a sleep schedule. I got to get dudes eating on the right time. I got to make sure that our, our kits are packed out with our gear and not your gear. We got a left seat, right seat. I got to know who to call. But I really want to focus on like how, how did you feel when there was nobody to call? So the 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 dirty little uh, you know backside secret about you know exfilling all of these people is that you really don't have anybody to call. There there was for so long for twenty years there was a really well defined chain of command and a huge staff and a huge support entity that lived there. And you guys showed up at a time where it's great that it was that efficient, but it's also terrible because you lost all that institutional knowledge and you lost all of those people that were integral little cogs in this machine that we, that we got used to for so long. Did that, did that worry you? Did that give you pause the first time that you called a number that there's nobody there to answer? I think the deployed commander and Sean were feeling a little bit more. Um, 
I was just trying to support them the best and just keeping the team, you know, motivated and keeping them on task. And, you know, times we were leaning in multiple directions, like at least two, just in case, because we were kind of waiting for the, the thumbs up on a multitude of ways things could go. And to understand too, like we weren't a full seven PR team. We weren't a full team. We were completely men manned. And throughout this whole process, um, we're going to talk to like where we split efforts and we'll get over to where we had guys and you and all that later. But um, we're pretty much unsupported with this exception of designated 47s. We're completely unsupported, completely organic. So, you know, we didn't have S2s. We didn't have people doing shit. It was just essentially the team guys figuring shit out, um, just getting the yes and not taking the answer. Um, and that's um, more later when things were a little bit more, expeditionary so to speak but um sure yeah well and sean you as the sel you show up and you're handed an absolutely unwinnable scenario like you are the adult in the room there's nobody else that's that's there in those architecture because you started i I know you're going to tell me you're like uh you had the face on right there where you're just like well i wasn't the only adult in the room we had support i I got it i'd like i mean like the it's (laughs) you're you know you're you had the nail on the head like uh the the like the ninth eight of a went away. The air expeditionary wing went away yeah, for, that's a big deal. You know, so essentially we were, we became take on to the U S for a forward commander, which at the time was Admiral Pete Baisley. Like we belonged directly to him. And then, you know, um, we were still like, uh, opcon to the CFAC but essentially Admiral Baisley could do whatever he wanted to do with us. And then, you know, which is just, just what, let me just flesh that out for everybody. So usually there's a bunch of these intermediary chains of command and like little people that you have to go through to get all the way up to the commander. So it can be frustrating, right? Like if you need the commander, it can be frustrating to have to meet those gates, but let me tell you, it can also be very protective of you and your team. You can get a lot more done by, you can play mom against dad. You can leverage those people that are in between you and the boss and they give you a little bit of protection. So there had to be their own challenges with reporting directly to him. And I guarantee you felt that pain. Yeah. I mean, the, um, I think they called it Supreka at the time, but like the PRCC director, uh, CV2, CV22 test pilot, um, guy by the name of Major John Appleby, great dude. He, we worked in conjunction with, with him to kind of maintain our piece of the puzzle and like our task and purpose during the retrograde. Um, but as complicated as those layers can be through the chain of command, conversely, it can also make things really efficient. Um, but, you know, as Bagram started to shut down, like our task and purpose at that point kind of became, um, figuring out what the PR slash CSAR piece of, you know, that retrograde of that operation looked like. And that's when we started kind of taking a look at bumping over to HKI to fill that role. Right. So just to, to get some, some more of these big dates out here. So on May 11th, the Taliban catch captures Nurk district and that's just outside of Kabul. So the Taliban is starting to get to, you know, to central areas on June 7th, some senior government officials say that 150 Afghan soldiers were killed in 24 hours. It was the deadliest uh, string 
in uh, the recent memory, like the last 10 years of Afghanistan. So uh, at this point, 26 of 34 provinces are engaged in heavy fighting. On June 22nd, Taliban fighters secure more than 50 districts countrywide. And that is absolutely insane. Um, and that sort of brings us to, you know, the July 2nd uh, tactical exit, the joint tactical exit. And uh, Chris, you talked about how efficient this was, how, uh, you know, before, um, do you have anything to say about, you know, what happened, you know, kind of around that early July where we started flushing people out? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we need to like back up maybe just a little bit. So, um, again, after that three weeks was kind of up and we were kind of, you know, coming up for air and, um, you know, our deploy commander and Sean had been sitting and essentially hoping someone will give us an or way forward or some type of at least timeline to work from. Uh, ultimately, it came down to, you know, they started the idea of Chikaya to essentially up the JTE, the Joint Tactical the last boots. And important note, too, is once we got boots on the ground, the essentially the initial timeline for that was, like, cut in half. So, like, where people were ready to get out of there as well. So caused a little bit off guard, and ultimately the decision was, um, we were going to basically split our team in half, essentially set up an over-the-horizon concept. And ultimately, we sent uh, four dudes, which was big because it was our deployed op soup as a TL, an ATL, and two strong team members uh, to fulfill that in an attempt to validate an over-the-horizon concept with CVs and using NSW as well to see um, what looked good on paper was actually a feasible option to basically hold theater PR from afar. Then the rest of us, um, essentially, um, it's hard to bring how big of a muscle movement this was in about 36 hours. Basically you've seen, a um, the seven PRTM, you've seen the ISUs now, trying to pull everything out to give the UA team, UAE team, um, enough space to build up what they need, then mix match everything, pack it up, get the Hasdex, get it JI'd, get it mobilized, get it to the yard, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and, and just to pause you, like, and by everybody out there, there is, there is no book for this. There's no playbook. They had to figure this out on their own and what they thought looked right. There's no checklist. It's literally a couple of problems. And by the way, no support. Yeah. Because the support had already been flowing out. So like that, you have to figure this out on your own. So when we talk about problem solvers and initiation and the things that you have to do and that you're going to be expected to do, this is an excellent example of it's not combat related, right? Like we're still in the preparatory phase and phase zero. And he had to make the decision of, okay, well, I'm about to loose these four dudes. Let's hopefully get them what they want to validate this concept, which is no small feat in itself. We know one could say that we're multi-capable airmen, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) One could say. Wow. That's capable of agile combat employment, would you say? (laughs) All right. So hit it off, MCA, Chris. Yeah. So actually... um, at that decision, that was my job to make sure the gear and people. Um, meanwhile, our deployed commander was still trying to get intent. Um, our OPSUP TL at that point was trying to get intent. Then Sean was trying to you know, establish infrastructure, uh, coordinated PDSS, because we're going to a place we've never been 
um, or, or never seen. You know, we can look on the maps. It's very small, not a lot of resources. So at that point, everyone's just kind of like in work mode, probably for about 36 hours. Um, sure. My ATL, at that point, there was no people to, to come pick up um, essential the ISUs. So we, we got one. Oh, perfect. We got one. <laughs> forklift and you guys know where the unit is that go all the way around the flight line he made about 16 trips consecutively driving back oh my so we were oh like, my god it is each time like rip it. it's like <laughs> um i got a guy he's like essentially like you know how everybody's made a fake id in their life he's like making fake hazdex because there's no fucking hazdex <laughs> he's like creating He's like the oh, Jesus. with the chick at the yard to prioritize our shit to get it to establish alert. Like guys are just like making, making shit it happen. Making shit yeah, happen. You got a lunch meat, baby. That's it. Making a dollar out of 15 cents, a diamond and nickel. Tupac said that. So he has a little bit of chaos, but um, ultimately that's just kind of, I kind of wanted to bring, you know, everyone talks about, you know, shit on the X. But like you said, like there's a lot of, you know, bandwidth all your things especially like with a 36 hour notice um to mobilize two teams in two different directions with limited aircraft and resources and you know all the things so but yeah and then sean at, at this point n no clarified guidance and intent you don't have a whole lot of top cover you're working directly you know for the how, how are you supporting the team and what did you find most valuable about your spot like where could you provide the most value so um, once we figured out that we were going to be going to HKIA, uh, to pull alert for the Bagram JTE, um, I took a young crow with me and essentially he and I forged staged over there to set up the infrastructure, the relationships, everything that we needed to receive the rest of the team. So, um, you know, like Chris was saying, he was kind of, uh, still leading the team there at Bath and I was forward staged at that point. Um, just kind of trying, trying to get everything ready to receive the team to focus on our next task, which was pulling alert for the JTE. Um, but you know, uh, major Tim Smith, the, uh, my squadron commander, he and I did a, a really good job of kind of dividing and conquering and figuring out, um, what holes needed to be plugged and where, and just kind of consistently looking for work, keeping up, keeping up comms. You know, we were, we were all really like high task, high collaboration at that point in time, because we had to be, because, you know, it was a, uh, it was just a no fail mission. You know, we just had to make it happen with the very limited resources that we had. And sometimes we had to get creative and, you know, send it and but i think once we you know once we got to h kaya we actually were able to roll into a pretty comfortable spot while we were there all you know all things considered absolutely and you mentioned some of those skills that you use well you know in that environment like where did those skills come from like where did those did you always just have them did you find them in the pipeline like did at any time did you just in your head you're just like oh man i I can't believe that I'm using what I learned at Indoc or in the pipeline here on target. Yeah, man. Like it's really interesting, but you know, I think one of the themes for this conversation will eventually end up being like your like relationships are everything. You know, there are, there were people that were a part of the Bagram J JTE that 
I was on target with 10 years prior in Sharana. Um, there were individuals in, um, like I, I had a, a cousin that was working in the Intel cell. I had, um, you know, just all these little one-off relationships or a single degree of separation that really held everything together. And, you know, you, you, I don't know if it's, 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 a, it's a combination of hard skills and soft skills, right? You have to be able to do the technical things well, but when it comes down to it, when you really need to mobilize and make things happen, um, it's like your, your credibility, like as a human, your credibility as an operator, all of these things come full circle because when you, in a circumstance like this, when you really have to make things happen and they're both urgent and time sensitive, um, you know, you just, you really ultimately have to fall back on the relationships that you've built with people. Right. That, I just can't even imagine. I can't even imagine having somebody out there that you can just call and be like, oh, hey, you know, thank goodness that we've talked before, but this thing is important. Like sometimes that's all you need. You just need to get past that first line of questioning for somebody you don't know and go, hey, you know me, I know you, even in passing, like we need to get this done and it's important. I, I bet that that had way more effects than almost anything else that you did out there. Yeah. And it was wild. It seemed around that entire deployment, every corner we turned, there was somebody that I knew or somebody else knew that, you know, what eventually ended up being in the, like the worst possible scenario that you could imagine, um, really helped kind of hold it all together at the end. Right. And that brings us up to the JTE on July 2nd. And, uh, you guys were, were both part and parcel to what was going on and you were there, Chris, how, how did you feel about supporting the JTE? Did you feel like you were ready? I feel like we were, um, holistically as a team, we were pretty, um, graded, but like however long it was a few weeks in between, like actually showing up, like we established essentially, you know, a lot of assets, a lot of infrastructure. So, um, you know, Sean, you know, got us a big clamshell for our gear and a place to sleep. Ultimately, we almost had like a one-to-one ratio of up-armored land cruisers. Um, <laughs> that's, but, that's awesome. Like Just 15 of my closest friends and up-armored land cruisers, y'all are rolling heavy, baby. Stunning yeah, getting nothing yeah. on you. We had an yeah. up-armored, dude, we had an up-armored G-Wagon at one point. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did you, how did you just, tack, you know, I don't want to know, but this is, this is what you do. You tactically acquire what you need. Yeah. There you go. It's, it's just kind of like the fog of like bullshit. Like guys just got tired of like people telling us no for no good reason. So we just like found ways to get to yes, bartering cigarettes, you know, healthy beers and t-shirts don't hurt you walk in. <laughs> We're like, how can we get to yes? You know I mean, I think at one point in time, we actually owned the MWR. We traded it. <laughs> uh, I had a staff sergeant coining the, the Turkish commander. Like guys were just, you know, we'd be like, Hey, here's our end state. Hey, we need badging. We need vehicles. We need X, Y, Z. Let's, let's get the yes. I mean, cigarettes aren't off the table, you know, let's, let's just get the yes. And like, yeah, it was a little loose at times, but it was always for the mission and, you know, having everything we needed, um, to do so. But so there was like a lot of tasks and a lot of fucked up sleep schedules and a lot of irritation and funny stories and, 
good bonding moments, but up into the JTE. Um, so it's important to understand that our designated aircraft um, were on the DOS side, which was, I don't know, at least, you know, a 10 to 15 minute drive down a flight line. It required all these processes and getting through different gates. Um, so essentially we were just hanging out by the aircraft for that day. And another, you know, you know, fuck you sandwich we're given is like our intent, like it's like one of the few pieces of intent that we got was like, Hey, post this JTE complete. You guys need to be mobilized, like within 12 hours, packed out, ready to go to the E. So at that point, again, we're doing the logistics shuffle. You know, we did all this work to kind of set this up, which was fine, past the time. But so we packed up everything, had everything J.I. again, staged, and we just took the shit down the runway, just standard alert gear. So basically when we got back, hey, we could throw our first. You throw it in the ISU? Yeah. yeah. You take what you're wearing, you yeah. throw it in a bag. Like we all have done this a million times, yeah. throw it in a bag, lock it up, now you're gone. Yeah. So, so nonetheless, uh, Sean, how long were we sitting there? It was, it was like a, about 10, 12 hours probably. For the JTE, yeah. Like that over on the Camp Alvarado. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, we just kind of just sitting there. We're monitored on comms, ready to go, trying to rest, um, trying to pass the time. We were within probably a 10-minute wheels-up response if needed. We'd probably be waiting on the crew. But, yeah, we're just hanging out and – Sounds like everything we're hearing over comms and any intel that we're getting, any um, X checks that went pretty flawless. Yeah. Um, it was pretty impressive. Just, you know, watch it all go down on ISR. Lots of different units, organizations, lots of different aircraft. Don't want to get too specific, obviously, but it was um, really could not have the X bill from Brogham couldn't have been more efficient or more, more surgical. That's fantastic. And now if I'm guessing here, because, uh, listen, I, we all know how things go. So I'm sure you didn't have to unpack that gear, Chris. Like, I'm sure you guys were just like, we're done, son. We're up and out of here. So July 2nd happens and we're gone. That's obviously not true or we wouldn't have had you on there. Yeah. So we move on to July 26th, uh, 2,400 civilians in Afghanistan killed since May. Um, and that was, a, that had to be a, a shitty thing for you guys to hear. Like, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but, you know, walk me through from, you know, immediately after the JTE and spoiler alert, everybody, uh, they didn't leave country just then. So Sean, what, what were you guys given and, and what did you guys have to prepare for after the JTE happened? You had it, spirits had to be super high though, right? You're like, wow, that, that exfil from Bagram was sweet. It worked well. I felt good about it. Nothing bad happened. What, what'd you have to do to continue on? Well, it was, you know, it was nice that nothing bad happened during the expo. I think we, everybody anticipated getting attacked or something happening during the expo, but, you know, fortunately nothing happened. Well, they, I'll but, tell you straight up, we, we were holding our breath, like yeah. in Afghanistan, like we were all, first of all, we didn't understand it. And this is, you know, this is not a shot at anybody and it's certainly not a shot at the chain of command, but we just did not understand it. We're like, why are we, what are we doing giving Bagram up? Like what's, what's happening? It seems backwards. It, it seems like you would do those other things. And we just tried to orient around it. And then we knew that we had friends on the ground and, you know, I was talking to those guys daily. 
was like, Hey man, you guys are doing, you guys are doing righteous work. Like just stay frosty and keep it going. And I'll tell you like from, from downrange and, you know, it, granted it was over sipper, but we were, you know, VTC with those dudes every, every day, every couple of days. And we'd have contact just checking in and say like, Hey, h- how are things going? Is everything's cool. And I, I'll tell you what, I was pretty relieved that day. Um, you know, kind of around the July 4th period where we were like, Hey, it went well. Nothing crazy happened. The guys are out. I, I don't understand the decision making, but thank goodness, you know that that nothing had had went wrong. So, um, you just sort of take it from there and talk us through the decision making that you had to engage in right after the JTE. Yeah. So, I mean, like JTE happens. You know, we go back to, um, you know, we're existing on on the base at HKI at that point, and you know, eventually some messaging comes down. It's like, hey. Um, you know, you guys are leaving HKI, like, you know, Pararescue Squadron is leaving HKI. And I look at Major Smith and I was like, bro, we're not fucking leaving. <laughs> <laughs> the classic, yeah. the classic senior NCO, yeah. bro. Come on. You got to be an A-dog. That's yeah. where you're like, yeah, A-dog, we're not leaving. I was like, bro, we're not fucking leaving. And sure enough, like they generate a C-17 for us. Like the order comes down, like pack up all your shit, get it on the plane. You're leaving in however many hours. And I was like, well, clearly somewhere, somebody doesn't realize that they're still flying like manned assets over the country. Everywhere. Yeah. All over. Right. Yep. So we get all our shit packed up. We are ready to go and load all our stuff on a C-17. Sure enough, call comes down, unpack all your shit, Staying at Hkaya, and I remember like looking and like, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, and like I have to be the bad guy that's telling the team like, hey guys, like, all right, order right now is we're packing up all our stuff and going home. Um, so that's that's what we got to do. We got to pack up all our shit, and you know, be prepared to expo. Sure enough, like you know, eventually somebody somewhere on, you know, I know what staff. I don't want to say it exactly but you know somewhere someplace like they connect the dots and they're like oh shit like they have to stay you know what i mean like this <laughs> oh, wait. is this is min C- yeah. csr is min force yeah. right exactly yeah. like this is min like they you know so pjs are staying at hkaya and like so we unpack all our stuff set the alert back up um you know continue to rehearse the alert And like, that's, you know, a big thing for, uh, you know, Major Smith and I, for Tim and I is like, you know, we have to keep the guys focused because the, the, even the mission at this point is ambiguous. You know, we're trying to figure out if we're going to be pulled, pulled into the state department mission, or we're going to, you know, just continue the CFAC alert, or we're going to be pulled to go augment other people, which typically, you know, usually happens. Um, so you know, for really our two main, um, our two main efforts at that point became continuing to like rehearse the alert and iron out all the wrinkles that we have to, um, navigate, especially while our air assets exist in a geographically, um, separate location. And then, um, our second line of effort was really just continuing to build relationships on HKIA because we had a really eerie feeling that we were now a part of like the last couple hundred Americans existing in Afghanistan. 
um, at the airport, which is a extremely like tactically disadvantaged location. You know, the airfield is that is such a you know that is such a crazy way that you just said that it's a piece of shit. That that airfield is not only in a I don't know how an airfield can somehow be in the middle of a bowl, but everywhere around it is taller. You can get on any building and see any period of yeah. that airfield. It's not, it's doesn't you know, have it was, like the fencing all the way through is just yeah. bullshit. It's, it's it was, in, you know, it was an international airport that at the, it was a NATO base at the time that was controlled by the Turks, which right. presented a lot of challenges for us, for us as well. But, you know, the airfield, our portion of the airfield was surrounded by all these high rise buildings. We couldn't yep. necessarily depend on, you know, our, like the, combined partners or NATO partners that provided the layers of security for us. So, you know, all the entities that existed on the base, like we started hustling together and developing a, you know, multiple different, um, contingency plans. Um, just a base defense, like base defense plan. Yeah. And, you know, people, I, I will say like special operations is great being a high speed PJ. It's awesome. Like, it's really, really cool. Guess what it comes down to. It comes down to basic infantry tactics. Doing the it comes down to well, def- yeah. defending your patrol base, coming up with your fields of fire, having mass casualty producing weapons at the at the most decisive points that you possibly can. That all it, it really is your baseline for everything. Yeah. Uh, people people tend to forget that because we're high flying, scuba diving, mountain climbing MFs. Like sometimes yeah. you just need to be a good infantry soldier, and I'm I'm glad you had that background oh. because you had. Dude. You had that background to help. I mean, like I, it was great because, you know, the conventional infantry forces that were there at the time were like, you know, there were uh, a couple of platoons from the 10th mountain division and, you know, like me, Chris, major Smith would walk in, you know, and like, you know, you would see them just kind of like they, even the conventional guys kind of rolled their eyes and they'd be like, Oh fuck. Like who are these jabronis? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, no, no motherfucker. Like I'm an 11 Bravo. <laughs> like you, yeah, like you and yeah. I, we got that in common. You know, but it, yeah, it, we have that shared suck. Yeah, it enabled us to kind of, you know, um, work through those relationships, rehearse some mass casualties. Um, you know, kind of we, uh, you know, once we got all those up armored land cruisers and other vehicles, we were able to kind of, um, you know, in the base defense plan, kind of uh, carve out a segment for us where we would be doing. Uh, both internal and external ground Kazovac operations, which ended up working out really well um, to a point. Um, so like, you know, making relationships with the homies on the other side of the airport became critical, um, which I'm sure we'll get into here in a little bit. But like, you know, the Brits, uh, the OGA component, um, you know, the uh, the task force entity that was still remaining there, we had a good relationship with. Um, but everybody who was still existing on HKIA was working together really, really hard, um, over a common communication thread to do the best that we could to, you know, facilitate whatever our mission was at that particular point. Um, because it was all, it all still kind of existing under a big cloud of ambiguity. Yeah. And I can only imagine. So Chris, in that, in that sort of like, you feel like just the day before the Alamo and it had to feel like that. Like, I'm sure there were times where it was eerily quiet. I'm sure there were times that, you know, you're trying to keep the dudes focused. What were you doing as a team leader to keep everybody on task in this completely ambiguous environment? 
Yeah, I think I, yeah, I got to go back a little bit to give the... <laughs> Listen, quit telling me to go back. Just put me on pause so that we can hit it. Just raise your hand, like crisscross applesauce, motherfucker. What's up? Yeah, so like... There, thank you. Yeah, thank we, you. we've talked about the trick fuck, you're leaving, you're not kind of thing a little bit. Yeah. To give people context, like essentially we're scheduled to be wheels up on the 17 about 10 hours post JTE complete. So we spent about three to four hours checking serial numbers, like getting the ISUs, getting them staged, getting them sealed. Dudes are packing up the room for like another two or three hours, right? Basically to walk out of that place. I think I've literally been asleep for about 45 minutes trying to catch a little bit. Then I get a boom, 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 boom. And I'll call it the talk. Then we get this news. So I guess you could see kind of where we're at. Like we've kind of been not necessarily led on, but like, we kind of just been going with the flow and that kind of at that point, everyone's like, what the fuck? Um, right. So meanwhile, so at that point we we're given about, I think 12 hours to give the the thumbs up. Hey, we're hundred percent back on alert. So focus is on that. But basically like kind of from here um, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, the percentages with, you know, how much we still had, how much the Taliban had, you know, mm-hmm. at this point we've kind of been monitoring like the the map is slowly getting more red. And the only thing that's really yeah. red anymore is this little peanut around H Kaya, which is where we're at. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right. Which by the way, we we laugh about it now, but Jesus Christ terrifying. Yeah. Just like yeah. you know, we we are laughing because I know you guys intimately and I'd like that okay, that's that's funny. But stepping back for a second. Holy fucking terrifying. And we, we all felt that for you guys, because like as any grown man, you know, that's, that's lived our profession as long as we all have collectively, you can look at those, those writings on the wall. And, you know, I've, I've described it as tactical momentum. There's always that time where you can feel that tactical momentum slipping away. And you're like, Oh no, this does not feel good. Like we, we need to make some change to stop this chain of events. So this little peanut and there you are the bird man and the flies in any weather in the middle of this peanut. Shit. We have to do some- <laughs> But anyways, I guess you can the vibe of the team was pretty shit. You know, like we all like to work hard, but we're just all a little frustrated. So, you know, a little dark humor, a little like literally literally everything we just did for like the last 24 hours. We had to like reverse engineer to get back on alert and kind of like we're kind of like watching and the trend of the and really the last big hub of Afghanistan is no longer us occupied. Um, terrifying. So really- terrifying when the, when the videos of, of Bagram, like I saw videos, remember when the Taliban posted those videos of like dudes, like working out in the gym and like doing stupid shit on Bagram. Yeah. No shit. One of those videos was from Camp alpha and I saw it and I was like, I know exactly where that is. I've sat at that desk. I know exactly where those dudes are. And that was, that was pretty sobering. Yeah. Yeah, so at that point, you know, you know, that point, realize you control what you can, and that happening outside of the fence, we can control what we're being tasked. With. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, good team bonding. You know, we were still attempting to make things better. It's critical, kind of continuing to creatively acquire real estate. Yeah, really. <laughs> have to. Hey, everybody's gone. Yeah, your um, drift must be a gift, baby. I don't care. Give me that spot. Little funny story. So, like, we're kind of, you know, we're we're doing shit. We're doing site surveys. Um, 
you know, people are coming to us out of the blue and they're, they're kind of talking, we'll say it for the first time, Neo, people are kind of like starting to float that. And uh, I think they rebranded it at some point. They started calling it the phase withdrawal, which yeah. I'm <laughs> okay. said in, in middle school, I didn't pay attention, but it seems like a, you know, this is kind of weird at that point. Uh, right. That you didn't want to call it that. Like, guys, it's called a NEO. And for, for whatever everybody out there, it's a non-combatant evacuation operation. That's what NEO stands for. And it's it's a skill set that pararescuemen, combat rescue officers, we all we all possess, we all train to, um, we all work it. So it, it, it's part of our skill set that we do. But I, I love it when people just label stuff differently and expect you not to feel the same way about it. Like, okay. Well, I think I've kind of planned a lot of seeds for conversation. I think it's time for a little bit of a funny story. So, again. <laughs> So, you know, during this time, you're like, oh, shit, we're going to be here for a while indefinitely. Because at that point, we're kind of like, well, shit, we're probably going to stay here. And probably someone's going to replace us at this point. Unless <laughs> something yeah, weird. Right. No chance anything right. happens, right? Um, uh, right. Yeah, for so, sure. Like, we start seeing, like, you know, you got the, like, the bazaars. You got people. You, know, you got, you got um, Turks, you know. It's mainly Turkish. Um, a little bit of U.S. mill we're at. We're seeing these, like, beach cruiser bikes. And we're like, man, we need some bikes. No good reason. We just we <laughs> start like get some bikes. So, you know, like one guy buys a bike, another guy buys a bike. Before long, about you know, like half a dozen of us have like beach cruisers. This one guy on team, one of the junior team members, he's like a very calculated fellow, right? So, <laughs> like, buy like the first one we see. We just you know like oh you want to, you know. 40 bucks for it. Here's 50, man. Cool. Call the deal. But he like gets the most supreme beach cruiser. He like, we made friends with this uh, <laughs> dude at the coffee shop. He's like, I have friends. I can get you the bike you want. He explains everything he wants, the whole trim. He's so proud of this bike when he gets it. He's like, look at my bike. <laughs> this team member and ATL have this very, uh, toxic communication style with each other. They just shit on each other a lot. And oh, okay. for whatever reason, you know, the ATL got pissed at the team with the, the lush bike. So he steals it in the night. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so in the middle of a war zone, yeah. this guy, his, su- yeah. his supervisor yeah. decides that he's just going to steal a bike. Oh, okay. No, I'm tracking. Yeah. Continue. This is, this is normal J shit. It gets better for like the next couple days. Like on the doors to like the, the morale room and stuff, he's taking apart the bike in pieces and leaving ransom notes. <laughs> oh, so yeah, you <laughs> on on it. So this team member of mine, uh, well, not mine, but the team member ours. gets um, ours. Ours, the, the royal. We there you go. Like soft spoken, chill dude. Like, we're like walking child. He walks up to me. He's like, hey, Chris, I'm going to kick his ass. Is it cool? I'm like, <laughs> no, no, it's not cool. Like, you're going to fight your bro over a fucking bike, man. Are you scared? <laughs> you know? Where were we? It doesn't matter. You got to find any port in the storm to help keep the team motivated. Like, that's that's hilarious. And, and people don't understand this, too. Like, you know, Peaches and I have talked about it on the podcast before. Like, some of the hardest that I've ever laughed has been at, like, the world's worst times where you just look at your bro and you're like, 
All I can do is laugh because it's, man, the walls are closing in around you. There you are trying to figure out how to stay motivated and complete absence of order or any sort of semblance of what you're used to. And here are these dudes talking about getting into a fist fight over a bicycle that they bought from a national. If that isn't what this thing is meant to be, I got to be honest with you. I don't know what it is. So as we're down there, the walls start closing in and it feels very Alamo-y. And uh, you guys are stuck there at HKIA for for a long time. I imagine that there were, and, and you know, while we're talking about NEOs, right? So you guys had a normal pre-deployment cycle. Did you guys focus on NEOs as part of your your pre-deployment, Sean? Fuck no. We changed to the, we, you know, like every good team, we trained to the most likely and most deadly car, you know? And like, those are the, sure. those are the things that with every good pre-deployment spin-up or mission analysis that you're training to. You know, uh, at that point, Neo absolutely was not on the table. Right. And and on September 10th of 2001, there was not a single special forces team that was doing horseback training in mountains. But on September 11, 2001, that shit changed. Yep. So like any good special operations team, you just had to flex and you just had to change kind of the, the direction of, of where you were going. Did you have anybody attached to the team or anybody that was helping you out through this process as you were making these relationships and building your team out to be a little bit bigger? You're bringing people into the fold, I would assume. Is there anybody at this point that, that sort of highlighted themselves as you're like, hey, we need this person to work with us more closely? Dude, we brought in a brand new senior airman, JTAC, that we got cut to us. Great dude, by the way. Like that kid jobbed out. Uh, we brought Tac Tac P yeah, or Yep, Tac P. Okay, uh, nice. We brought him in, um, and I can't even remember which organization offered him up to us. But he was a guard tech, right, Chris? Guard Tac P kid. Um, but you know, we we very quickly like um, got with our homies. You know, our TF homies across the way, and we were like, hey, like. You know, this kid super squared away, just needs a little bit of mentorship to be effective. You know, you guys are probably some of the most lethal assets that we have here. So we need to um, figure out how to use you all appropriately in the event that this Alamo plan has to be executed. So, sure. you know, um, you know, we got him tied in. But really, as far as folks on the team that, you know, um, were, were like organic to our team, he was it the peripheral relationships that we developed with, um, you know, the OGA guys, uh, the TF guys, the Brits, um, we ended up having one really key relationship that we developed with the, um, Marine operations group, central forward counterintelligence team, like their, uh, their gunnery sergeant became a really, really critical piece in our operation. Um, later on down the road, but, uh, you know, Hey Sean, I'm going to kill you. If you keep clicking that pen, uh, I swear to God, like I'm going to have to hear about this. People are going to (laughs) blame me in the comment section. They'd be like, Oh, it was great until this clicking came on and it was all Aaron's fault. So you kind of breezed over it. (laughs) Yeah, I know you're starting to get antsy. I love it. So you, you kind of breeze over, but like sister service, multinational joint combined operations that you got straight through your ability. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. So like what Sean's alluding to, even though we were fucking around with bikes and, you know, getting in fight, building shit with wood and working out four times a day, I think this point from JTE complete is where we actually sharpen some relationships. Some sought us out. 
we sought others out um, with the Marines, uh, the infantry units, um, people across the way, the OGA folks. Um, and we kind of were kind of building a convoluted picture based on kind of what they knew, kind of what we knew, what we were capable of. And, and this time we also um, built like a team internal, essentially defense plan where we were able to strong point like main areas of interest for us and be able to like we established some like key points for DFPs. So like if we said go, everyone knew where they were going to be. And this actually kind of leads into when, you know, shit really starts to happen. But yeah. well, let me let me back you up, Chris, because we're not there yet. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah. I, li- I like how we're raising hands yeah. now. Everybody's so a cu- couple couple key points that I think are important to mention. So during this period of time, um, SecDef signs a special order to launch an entirely separate personnel recovery task force. So while we're existing in HKIA, um, a one thirty squadron, a sixty squadron, and another PJ squadron end up. Uh, deploying and showing up to HKIA. And a lot of our effort becomes getting ready to receive these guys, get them stood up on alert. I don't know, you know, like objectively the HH-60G is not a very capable aircraft at an airfield that sits at 6,000 feet MSL, but somehow that became our only option. So we just, is you know, we knew it wasn't a great option. We knew it wasn't like a really capable option to even meet the requirements that we had, but that's what we were given and we just had to make it work. So, you know, we got the PRTF commander tied in with Admiral Vaisley, his battle staff. Um, and we just, and then we started collectively executing um, rehearsals with them. And, you know, the 58th, the PJs from the 58th became kind of married up with the 60s. We stayed married up with our 47s. Um, you know, and we collectively had a, uh, you know, kind of a relatively capable like PR force, um, that was still existing on the ground. Um, back to the key relationships piece, you know, we, um, we started integrating Jay's working at the role two at the hospital, getting, you know, uh, making relationships with the, it was also a combined hospital with the Norwegians and a bunch of us docs. So working hard there. Yeah, and to, that that's going to be pretty big Yeah, as we start talking about getting, getting folks out to Norwegians, you know, to their credit, we're credited with saving a shit ton of people, especially kids. Yep. They did a lot of work with the Afghani kids. So those relationships, making those inroads, man, good, good on you. Good to, Nor- to the Norwegians. Shout out to all the bros up at the MJK squadron two. Bravo. What's up? <laughs> those are my boys. But, uh, anyway, go on. Um, you know, so we, we just, we start looking for work, you know, that's kind of the name of the game is we are, you know, we're, we're looking for work. Um, and, uh, I think a really critical piece is, you know, once, once the PRTF gets on the ground, like our, our primary task and purpose in theater is still, you know, PR and combat rescue, but we very quickly realize the assets that we have are like are very constrained, like they're constrained by, you know, the altitude that we're operating at. They're constrained by ACL. They're constrained by threat. Um, And as the outstations start to close, we become very constrained by fuel. And, you know, this became, this becomes as aircraft are flowing in from wherever they're flowing in from, 
you know, we very quickly realized that we need to start thinking creatively in the event of a, uh, a CSAR problem or like, you know, an yeah. I, in, an IP type situation, you know, so and we, to, to frame, I'm going to put you on pause yeah, think about where it. you are, but like for everybody out there, like there was a time in Afghanistan where we live by the golden hour. You just need to get somebody to like a, a, a role of hospital that can stop them from dying within an hour. There was a time in Afghanistan where not only could you do that, like you could just fly wherever it was close enough, but you could hop, you could leapfrog, in the 60 with not enough fuel because you just land somebody else, take take their hot gas and go on. I want to, I want to focus you into what Sean is saying that doesn't exist. Now those outstations that you could just land at and you could get like, if your aircraft had a problem or if you needed fuel, that wasn't a thing. The only show in town was H Kaya and you didn't have anywhere else that you could go. So you had to start looking to source other options because it, it just was not an option. And even you know, the AR tracks, I guarantee were not that, were not that cool. You weren't just going to be able to get a tanker overhead. Like this was not 2010 Afghanistan, 2015 Afghanistan, where you had the world overhead and you had any number of resources. Now you're not only working in a high threat environment, it's an extremely logistically constrained environment. You just don't have what you had there before. So I wanted to clarify that to everybody because it's a point to really bring home that you guys were working you were doing more with less. Again, it's, it's going to come up, but the multi-capable airmen that y'all are, you have to figure out inventive solutions to this thing. Yeah, and you know we're we're still trying to figure out which assets that we have where that could vet fuel at may exist at an airfield that does not have any security on in the event like an an extremist type situation. Yep. But you know, at a certain point, we're looking at leveraging Afghan special mission wing uh, MIs to execute an American IP recovery, because that might be the only capability that we had. So, you know, based on executing a thorough mission analysis kind of drove us down this path of, um, you know, what resources are physically present here that will, uh, be able to go help us execute this mission if it, you know, if it happens. So we, you know, uh, Tim Smith and I were working really hard to like build those relationships, kind of validate capabilities. Um, you know, these kind of like really in extremist plans that we were responsible for. So, you know, that became really important. You know, we're continually ironing out those relationships and like, um, kind of in the meantime, in the greater context of things, like we mentioned before, like a lot of these, um, you know, provincial capitals, provinces are falling and, you know, we'll get into this one dude that we ended up rescuing later, but there was a, uh, MD 530 pilot squadron commander out in Kandahar that, um, you know, MD 530s are similar to AH 60s. It's a, like a small helicopter similar to a little bird, but, you know, he's, he's flying in the battle of Lashkargah is the last literally the last human to leave Kandahar airfield load, lo like loads up an Intel guy and a maintainer on his extremely like ACL limited helicopter loads up as much ammo as he can. This guy, like to talk about the sheer valor and willpower that's in fight that is still left in some of these Afghans during this period of time, like he takes off flying single pilot, single ship, Winchester's all his ammo, kills as many like 
Talibs as he possibly can, ends up crash landing in a, a middle of a field somewhere, like jettisoning, like jettisons his guns, like, you know, jettisons his empty fuel pods and eventually uh, ends up like gets close enough to Kabul that he can like call some homies on his cell phone and that like come to get him to meet up with his family that he's pre like pre-staged in Kabul because he didn't know if he was going to make it there or not. Um, you know, but while we're doing all our stuff and working these lines of effort, these are the things that the Afghan people are kind of doing and dealing with that, um, you know, like obviously we get made aware of these particular instances and situations, but there are, you know, what we're doing and what things like that particular circumstance are happening at the exact same time, you know, um, in July, uh, during the fall of Afghanistan. And it's still like, just, you know, kind of blows my mind. The, uh, some of the things that these, these folks did. Yeah. And that, that gets us to August 6th, kind of what you're talking about. The first provincial capital falls in Zaranj, uh, Kunduz falls uh, shortly after that. And, you know, I already alluded to it, but it's it's crazy you bring up the MI-17s. But I watched those MI-17 pilots in the when we took over the Kunduz airfield, and we, we had essentially a huge operation um, that was in the, the fall and winter um, of one of those years. We took over the airfield, we operated out of that airfield, and we basically wanted to, to take everybody from where they live, right? Because what used to happen is, you know, the fighters would come over in the fighting season, they'd fight, and then they'd go back home in the winter. Well, we had this crazy plan, and I say we, I mean America, seize this airfield, and then we're going to run operations out of there with a combined force, and we're going to go route all these people out where they live. I watched some of those MI-17 pilots risk their lives in, like, some of the most valiant ways to go pick those people up. Uh, and, and to go risk their lives and their aircraft to go do it. And it was an impressive thing. Um, and we saw it years earlier. Um, so to hear that you had sort of the same, you know, the same, you know, experience years later is, is, is a crazy thing. Um, but, you know, so Condus falls after that. That's a huge strategic area. And the, the circle is, is starting to shrink even more. And that red is encroaching even more. On August 13th, four more provincial capitals fall, including Kandahar and Herat. Before we went to Bagram in 2015, we were running, you know, at one time in the, in the heydays of Afghanistan, Air Force Rescue played a, played a role in Helmand, in Bagram, and Kandahar, and all of the surrounding areas, you know, Jabad, Abad, Asadabad, all these other places were, were all places that we went, Herat, you know, up north, up to Mazari, Mazari Sharif that we'll talk about in a second, and Shank, and Sharana, and all these other places the landscape had remarkably changed for you guys at this point. And that brings us sort of, you know, to this August 13 timeline, uh, four more provincials fall, but most, uh, most importantly in Herat, uh, Muhammad Ismail Khan, the primary guy that's fighting against the Taliban, he ends up getting captured. And this absolutely breaks the heart of the resistance. Um, and things start going downhill pretty quickly. So Chris, we talked about that team leader intuition. Oh no, Sean, you got it. I like the little, I like the little one, the little guy. Yeah. What do you got? So, uh, August 14th was an interesting day because, um, we actually started, we got notified of a PR incident that we potentially, um, were going to have to respond to. And it turned out that there were these two vice reporters 
that had voluntarily embedded themselves with like an NFU, NFU zero unit down in Kandahar. And they were with the zero unit during like the battle of Kandahar during the fall of Kandahar. Mm -hmm. And they almost, um, like the zero unit got overwhelmed. They, uh, you know, took a lot of casualties and these two vice reporters were embedded with them. There's, I think that their, their documentary is on YouTube. You can, I, I haven't watched it, but, um, I've been told it's pretty interesting, but anyway, these guys end up, uh, we end up flying an Afghan C-130 down there to exfil the NSU zero force where these two American vice reporters are on. So we get sent to go pick up these two vice reporters on the early morning of 14 August on the Afghan air force ramp. And you have like all these commandos with, you know, Afghan commandos with, you know, Oakley M frames, mullets and tiger stripes, you know, getting off the aircraft, like door opens, ramp drops, and they're unloading a, like, I don't know how many casualties, like they probably had 10 litter bound casualties, 10 litter patients, other guys are just bandaged up, stitched up, like blood everywhere. And then all of a sudden, these two fucking jabronis with like skinny jeans and Doc Martens get <laughs> off the plane. And I'm like, I'm like, you guys, in my mind, I'm like, you realize that we almost got spun up to like, come save, come save y'all. Like, I understand like the, the nature of journalism sometimes, but I was like, man, this is just really not the right place or the right situation for you guys to, you know, um, insert, read the room, Bob, yeah, not it, the right time. Yeah, read it, the room, Bob. insert yourselves into, um, but you know, so we take control of these two Americans and then, um, hand them off to some other folks and, uh, get them kind of on their way home. But for me, like that, that was the first time I like was able to like see or touch kind of like the chaos that was going on outside of the gates was seeing like all of these casualties get uh, taken off of this Afghan air force C one thirty on, um, on ramp nine. It was, it was really sobering and it kind of, did that make it, did that make it more real for you? It had, like, did you, did you, I mean like it, it did because you know, like, in my mind, I knew what we were preparing for, like, you know, the intel reporting, the threat reporting, everything that was happening, all the rehearsals that we were doing for the, like, quote unquote, Alamo plan. Um, mm -hmm. But like, now you can see blood, now you can see casualties. And now, like, it's like your, your spidey senses uh, are now validated. It is kind of the best way to, sure. or kind of the best way to describe it. But that was essentially my, uh, my experience on 14 August. Did you, I thought Chris was going to go. I was, I was waiting for it, Chris. So yeah. And on 14 August, Masri Sharif falls, the capital of Logar falls. The U S decides to send some more troops to bolster Bath. Um, you know, at that point, like the shit has hit the fan. You know, to quote one of my good friends, the fecal matter has hit the oscillation device in full form. So Chris, as kind of the walls start closing in on you and you guys are getting more of this info, did you change your your preparation? Did you change your planning? Like what what changed when this thing started going from woe to wow? Because I imagine, especially for you, you had to start going, okay, like there's only one target left. 
Like it's easy when there's a bunch of targets, like you hear about base attacks all the time. And, you know, we turned over a team and on Bastion shortly after the big Bastion attack that happened. But, you know, there were, there were these things that happened, you know, across the country. Well, now you're the only show in town. Did you guys feel that in any sort of way? Did it get heavy for you guys? Uh, I, I would say no, just like with like, I use the word insidious. Like we've been in theater 70 days at this point and each day you kind of get not walled to complacency, but you kind of fill up. a. T- it's like boiling a frog, baby it, one degree at a time. And, and before you know it, it's, it's hot. Like we're vigilant. Like we're, we're, we can see what we can see with our own eyes. We're from our friends. Um, you know, people are talking about things, basically zombie lands happening outside of those walls. Literally. Um, we talked about the gas station thing. So we have zombie land happening. We shut down willingly, willingly all our gas stations. So every key conversation, mission planning rehearsal always revolved around gas and playtime and so on and so forth. So I would say yes, but it was, wasn't just like one day, Hey, we're going to think about everything. We were just making tweaks as we went along. Um, everybody was building their, common operating picture you know everybody was mm-hmm. kind of read into everything it wasn't like you know before you deploy you get that four hour update brief and you try to digest it we were digesting little pieces over time and we had a good pretty good sight picture on what was going on outside the walls um at this point like people had and, and keep in mind too we talked about the prtf coming in which was a what was a 179 and when we say PRTF, we're talking about Personnel Recovery Task Force. So it's a specifically trained, equipped, employed, and deployed entity that is there to affect personnel recovery, right? So th- remember that the Air Force is the only entity that actually has a force that trains 100% of its time, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, to personnel recovery, and it provides those services to the larger DOD. So when the DOD was like, hey, we have this huge thing going on. We need somebody to come in and do PR. They tasked PRTF and that is a, like an ex- expeditionary asset. Sorry, sorry to interrupt Chris. So like, keep in mind, we've kind of watched this space went down the bare bones of fluctuation personnel. You know, you got, you know, coalition forces going home. Then from the point AT till now, like I mentioned, the PRTF, which is roughly 200 people and UTCs and aircraft, we have other assets. So, basically watched everybody leave and we watched it being built back. Um, so yeah, we, we all knew something wasn't necessarily imminent, but we knew there was a good that thing. If that makes sense. It does. You're smart enough to figure out like, Hey, you, you can read the writing on the wall. This wasn't your first rodeo. Like you understand when things are that tactical momentum is slipping away. And that brings us to August 15th. So Jalalabad falls. The greatest thing about Jalalabad used to be they would have a Mongolian barbecue on like, I want to say it was Thursdays. There was a special operations hub that was down there. And we would have PJs that were attached to the special forces units that were there, the Army Green Berets. And they would hit us up. And they'd be like, hey, Mongolian barbecue on Thursdays. So we would take flights down to Jabad. And we would go meet up with those dudes just so that we could eat their Mongolian barbecue at their, at their chow hall. It was fire. But Jalalabad falls, and the big thing about that is that it effectively surrounds Kabul. Yep. So now you are no shit effectively surrounded. Yep. 15 August was also another really important date because President Ghani fled the country. So um, Ghani flees, and um, 
Shukriya Baraksai, the Afghan ambassador to Norway, becomes like the de facto first lady of Afghanistan. And that becomes an important fact uh, slightly later on down the timeline. Ooh, I love the storytelling. Yeah. I love it. Let's just foreshadow it a little bit. Don't yeah. go anywhere, anybody. Just smash that subscribe yeah. button while you're here and let's talk <laughs> about it here in a second. So you guys are effectively surrounded a day later. And this is 124 days after Biden announces withdrawal. We spent 20 years training, equipping, getting ready, working side by side. And in 124 days, the Taliban takes Kabul after Biden announces the withdrawal. Um, it was, it was a shock to everybody. It, I was home at this time. I had redeployed, um, just prior to this. I'd actually, um, just gotten off a plane back to home station and had about enough time to get my sleep cycle when I saw that Kabul had fallen. Did that give you guys, I, I mean, there, there had to be a, an emotional involvement in this entire thing. I was involved in a completely different thing, um, you know, back here and, and a little bit of di- dissociated from it. So I'm not going to pretend like I, I was like crying myself to sleep every night, but there had to be some feelings that you guys had about Afghanistan falling in the manner that it did. Uh, Chris, did it, did it matter to you at all? Um, not necessarily in the moment. I think we were so focused on keeping an ear open to see like what the next thing was. Um, but, you know, looking back, uh, just managing expectations, like, as long as we took to establish what we had, then quickly it dissolved. Realistically, like, there's, we weren't going to leave that thing feeling good about it. Um, right. Completely good about it. And this is just from my perspective, but, you know, thinking about, you know, the Marine that spent every summer in his twenties and RC South patrolling that motherfucker and how he felt about, you know, his friends and like, you know, and that's just one example off the top of my head. So, um, but there were being realistic about it. Like there was no good way to, to leave that place, you know? Yeah. And, and Sean, you, you talked about it personally with me that your emotional investment, um, that really drove a lot of your decision making like that day where you were just like, okay, this is, this is a thing now, now, now it's about protecting the guys, uh, you know, to the left and to the right and getting as many people out as possible. This is really the first day that that was a thing because you're like, okay, well it's, it's done. Like the resistance, it may be valiant, it may be well-placed, but it's over. And now we got to figure out what the next step is. How, how did you keep your mind right and think about what that next step is in that moment? The problem was, is that it was really hard to, the next step was like so ambiguous, right? Like my, like based off of what the Taliban had been doing, how they were essentially, you know, decimating the, you know, Afghan national army and like the Afghan security forces, they were just like laying down their weapons and fleeing. They were making very deliberate calculated executions of like key government officials leading up to this point. Um, So, you know, we're getting all this, you know, we're getting flooded with Intel through official channels and through open source. And in my mind, I'm taking all of this information and processing it. And my intuition is telling me that 
Um, they're going to try to start a fight at the airport, likely through indirect fire, rockets, mortars, because of their standoff capability and um, their, you know, their the ability for us not to be able to engage them at those distances. And I'm anticipating, I'm, I'm anticipating a fight at this point. And um, I had made sure that the team was ready. Uh, we had, you know, defensive fighting positions, rain cards, range cards, just like you were saying, high casualty producing weapons at all the right points. Like, you know, that was what I demanded that the team executed and rehearsed up until this point. And, you know, like I, that's in my mind, what I was preparing myself for was this, like this Alamo type situation. And then as the night of the 15th August came and all the civilians started to run the airport, like the, you know, the threat was really ambiguous because in my mind, I was expecting just a you know, the Taliban to try and, you know, do God knows what with the last remaining Americans at the airport just to make a statement. But the narrative very, very quickly started to change because, you know, the pressure, the external pressure from the Taliban that were being placed on all the civilians, you know, as the civilians started to overrun the airport uh, that night, um, you know, they, we very quickly started to realize that they were in fear for their lives um, you know, in a absolutely desperate way. So I'm trying did, did that humanize them to you. Oh, because absolutely. a lot of I mean, times, like, like, I mean, like Afghans, you know, they, you know, I, I've been on multiple deployments with, you know, Katehas commandos, like, you know, like develop close relationships with these guys over my 20 plus year career in the military. Right. It mainly as a guat fucking soldier. So, you know, the humanizing them was never really a factor, but when you see entire families of, you know, men, women, children, women carrying very, very small babies, like rushing the airfield, you know, that it not only humanizes them, but it like you, it forces your mindset to your mindset to shift from, you know, protecting your physical space from the enemy to like, what the fuck are we going to do about these people? You know? Right. Right. So, and then it becomes a balance because like all of your spidey senses are still going off about protecting your physical location, not wanting to let this mob of people breach your space um, that you're responsible for. Because that's a danger too. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't know how somebody can hide and attack her in there. You don't, you can't vet these people. There's no way. And, you know, to, to frame this for everybody too, all it takes is a couple of well-placed mortars on this airfield. And now it really is the Alamo. Now it is, we can't, we can't drive a plane down it to get enough speed to take off. Now it's a real thing. Like you guys have to understand what the actual meaning uh, and behind the feelings are here. So you have all these competing interests of, I have to protect my team. I have to protect myself. I have to protect the people that I'm there to actually support. And oh, by the way, now there's thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people that are just humans that are terrified of the impending chaos. And you have to be, you have to, you have to bring calm to that chaos. So as that started going downhill, Chris, what did you guys focus on? 
like I imagine there was a pump up speech, like remember the Titans or possibly 300. We were just loading where... mags, bro. Load as many fucking mags <laughs> as you can. It, it was like we load as many. load as many fucking magazines as you could. Uh, That's it. Gonna seem like a little bit of a cop out, but honestly, those last two weeks, there's like highlights that blend. I do remember when the airfield was actually breached. Um, Sean, you remember what time that was? I think it was POV. I can't remember exactly what time. I think it kicked off with like a shots fired call on like ramp nine. Yeah. Um, and then, but it was, it was the night of the 15th where there was a lot of people coming to the airport to catch a flight to like Tajikistan. Sure. And like what we didn't know at the time was like, the Taliban external to the airport is, you know, doing like a really, a lot of like really bad things to these civilians. Unfortunately, I'll say I'm just straight up war crimes. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have the the freedom to say it, but you know, the, the reports that were coming out of there were, were absolutely horrific and it only served to make more people go. And again, you know, put this in the, in the correct context. There was one way out of Afghanistan right now. And it was Hamid Karzai International Airport, and that's where all of the epicenter was. There was there was only one spot yeah, to be. But like, I just um, I remember going over my notes previous to, you know, previous to this discussion, so I could be well prepared for it. But at this particular point, like the Taliban is um, taking babies from families. You know, they are executing people. They're beheading people. They're dragging. You know, like. Uh, you know, very deliberate, calculated killings of government officials. And um, there's a reason why the chaos that ensued ensued. Sure. Uh, I guess so, Chris, part of this go ahead. kicked off. There was a lot of confusion that uh, since it was dark and um, essentially we established our OPs and our positions and our base of defense um, we had our senior leader talk, waiting to get some clarity what was going on. We're all up comms. And we're just, my position was basically where our, where we bedded down was a structure. There was a couple stories over the fence. So I could overlook the whole airfield and over to the terminal. Then basically all we could see was like flashing lights in the infield of the, between the two runways and friendlies, like basically intercepting them and just shots come to find out they're warning shots, but basically you see flashing overt lights and then you see, you know, MRAPs and stuff going to meet these people halfway and kind of prohibit their limited advance over to really where the bread and butter of um, the base was. Um, Then from there, it was truly just a pickup game, to be honest. Then foreshadowing, as you like to say, like, the things that we ended up doing, the the good that we're able to do, generally came to us. Like people requesting us, and we kind of did one thing, which led to the next, and, and so on and so forth. And we kind of just got flowing, then we didn't really look back. Um, really, the first couple days of it was kind of slow as far as like, making like a true difference. We were still trying to kind of understand exactly what was going on. Uh, the c- crowd control was the biggest thing. Um, Cause I'm warning shots and smokes only go so far, 
Um, but when we yeah. finally brought in the Afghan commando entity to kind of help us with the crowd control, they're able to actually push it off the airfield um, at that point. Um, then it's just like good to mention also, like from my perspective, there's all this noise, like literally in our face, but also we like, we are pulling CFAC alert for assets. So um, there is a tipping point where we start to accept risk on holding alert for CFAC. Keep in mind, we are mid man. We don't have shifts. We have one team. Um, but really for me, based on what I recall that first couple of days was pretty slow. We weren't like pulling people over the fence yet or, you know, moving buses full of people. We were just kind of trying to understand, protect ourselves, uh, just get our wits about us. Do you think the PJs are, are like uniquely suited to this thing? Like for who we are and what we do and what we train to? I would say yes. I mean, just because, um, yeah, I mean, you can, I mean, obviously you talk about the selection process and attributes and the, the conditioning, but, um, I, th- I think we're, we're fairly used to being handed a, a massive dick sandwich, you know, up front <laughs> and figuring out how to nibble on the, eat that dick, you know, so to speak. I, I was going to cut this into a reel right now and you prevented me with your language. You, you made it so that I can't possibly actually cut you off and, and like make a, a clean clip of that. So I, I, I want to say thanks, Chris. Yeah. You've always kept me honest and this I, time is no different. So I, make me work for it. What you're doing. But, <laughs> but I, I've been involved with uh, hey hey bro here's your upgrade scenario you have a six-man team you have 25 you know non-ambulatory critical patients you are in uh an unwinnable tactical situation and you have no assets go so i mean we're kind of used to just kind of being that way and i think whether we did it on purpose or whatever, we're just trying to be that shitty evaluator or whatever. Tech. Right. But, um, I can hear you. Uh, I'm right here. <laughs> like I, I can hear, I can hear you when you talk. So, but short answer, which ended up being a longer answer. Yes. Yeah. I think Chris did a really good job of kind of defining what our priorities were at that time. Like we knew that we were still on the hook to respond to a PR incident. Um, based on our our like task and purpose inside of the alamo plan we had the ability uh to execute ground kazavak internal and external to the airfield um as all of that was going on but our primary most time sensitive and most urgent task at that particular point was base defense and controlling the airfield and i think then that's when you know the scales started to tip from like well maybe we're not going to get decimated on this airfield maybe this problem the problem is kind of simultaneously shifting to controlling this crowd and then the crowd control became a combined effort of um some zero units and then the u.s eventually deploying enough combat power uh from the 82nd and um existing marine entities to um, eventually secure the airfield i think the on the 16th, it was like POD 1617 that we were able to move the flot back to basically like runway center. 
Got it. Flat is forward line of troops. That that's basically no man's land. Like that's where the enemy is and you aren't. So I, I want to kind of dig into this a little bit. Like there were all these other agencies, right. That were helping out, but in a very well publicized move, there were some other agencies that were also involving themselves in this area. Did you have any, you don't even have to talk about it. What I would ask is, did those, did those agencies, were they helping? Were they hurting? Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? I think, um, based on like the situation was bad for everybody at that point. It was, it was bad for us. It was bad for the Taliban. And I think we were doing everything that we could, uh, you know, I dare I say work together to keep it under control, but there were some very, very high level discussions going on to try and maintain control of, um, the airport itself. Sure. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, any port in the storm, you know, it, there, there comes a time, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, the, the Americans and the Germans in world war two that had you know, Christmas dinner together. Like, Hey, uh, listen, we may have had our differences prior to this, but unless we really figure this out, like there, it's just going to end with more people dead. We got to figure out a way to make this happen. And Chris, you did a perfect job of explaining earlier. Sometimes it's hour to hour. Sometimes it's decision to decision. And those sort of things remind me of, you know, making it meal to meal at Indoc. You know, you know, Sean, you and I went meal to meal together. Uh, our entire Indoc was, hey, just make it to lunch, just make it to dinner. Just, hey, we got breakfast done. Let's just make it to lunch. Let, let's have a couple of those. Um, and you know, Chris, way to way to screw up my soundbite there. But you know, that's why I think pararescue men and combat rescue officers are uniquely suited to this. You know, a larger to a larger extent, the soft community is really really good. And just living in the suck and finding ways to continue to press on. Were there any other folks that you made? Like, I, I want to touch on the relationship thing. You've established all these relationships and now here you guys are in a time of need. Did you guys link up with those people that you made those relationships with? And, and how did that help you out in those times? Because we're, we're going downhill, like we're speeding towards you know, the next event as we get through the 16th, the 17th, the 18th. You guys are figuring out things that you needed to do. What, uh, you know, what were those days like? I'll say a little bit. And I think Sean could kind of, there, there was a very key thing that we got information on that kind of opened the curtain to us transforming, like transforming ourselves and our priorities. Yeah. We were still going to hold the seat back thing, but we're like, we're not going to ignore that. There's things that could be done and like going back to like us, being a squad size element, having lots of vehicles. So our maneuverability was awesome. Our ability to, to go do things. Um, but yeah, just leading up to that, like at that point, this key moment that, that Sean's going to talk about is when we were bumping shoulders with people and they were able to do one thing, but like, Hey, next time, can you help me do this thing? But like, Hey, I got this thing. Can you help me with this thing? Then it just kind of, proliferated after that like um hey this is the pj's op then we had support from guys hey this is so-and-so's op like or goal or task you know it wasn't really an operation because it was just really a pickup game of people just good but sean i'll hand it over to you yeah i mean like so um ships that we built over the course of 1516 august like 1516 august was pretty intense and like very, very focused on base defense and um, everybody that we had made relationships 
with at that point we were communicating with on a really, really on, I mean, on a regular basis, but primarily just over text, you know, it's like, Hey bro, what do you got? Do you need my help? Dudes would be pinging us. Hey man, what do you got? Like, are you guys okay? Do you need us to flex over there? And, you know, um, no troops in contact, no casualties. Everything is kind of hominous, not hominous dominus, but everybody's maintaining at this point. And then, sure. um, you know, the 17th rolls around and um, something really interesting happens on the 17th for us. And so I'm going to put my fucking pen down. Um, Thank you, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. just about to ask you again. <laughs> yeah. Like, I get, Sorry, it's I get like, you just have to understand. I'm just like kind of hyped up right now, but I, yeah. So <laughs> I love yeah. the energy. Just do it the, quietly, uh, my guy. The, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you can AI that out or whatever, but sorry. Uh, no, so, so anyway. I can't. No, now I just get made fun of for it, but don't worry. <laughs> so, I do that all the time. So anyway, so something, uh, something really interesting happens on the 17th. So, um, at a previous assignment, uh, you know, I was off status for a while. And while I was off status, I, um, one of my previous mentors, Mike McBee, um, phenomenal PJ, phenomenal human. He was like, you know what? Legend in the career field, by the way. Yeah. Legend. So McBee was like, you know, Sean, like while you're sitting around, like, uh, you know, playing with your dick and not doing anything because you're off status. Like, why don't you go to PR 301 and like learn how to be a PRCC director. Um, I was like, all right, man, cool. So I go to this course, end up befriending this dude who's a uh, 20 year operator now working um, for the state department, specifically running PR operations in far corners of the world. But we kind of developed this friendship and stay in touch. And this, when I went to this course back in 2000 and, 15, I believe. Uh, but anyway, his name is Sean. We'll call him Sean G. Um, so Sean G and I go to this course together. So I've been keeping tabs. Sean G and I have been like keeping in touch with each other during, um, the course of the events in Afghanistan and as everything's unfolding and Sean G texts me on the 17th of August and says, Hey bro, I got a high priority lady who is isolated on the far Southeast side of the airfield. Can you go get her? And in my mind, like I immediately start balancing priorities. I'm like, well, we still have the CFAC alert. You know, we still have the ground CASVAC alert. We're still trying to figure out what the fuck is going on, like on the airfield and where everybody's at. Um, so I start, you know, I just kind of hammer them with some RFIs, like who is she? Why is she important? You know, what's her, um, what's her background? What's her contact info? So, um, turns out that she's an Afghan national worked directly for president Ghani, but had been already captured and beaten by the Taliban and, uh, was, had been in hiding on the Southeast side of the airfield since, uh, the 15th, since like the initial rush and, you know, after I hammered out these RFIs with Sean and kind of determined that she really was in danger and um, at risk of being executed after we kind of got like the intel dump from her, like she, she sent us pictures of 
threatening messages from the Taliban saying that they were going to kill and rape her. And, you know, it kind of increased our sense of urgency surrounding her specifically. So I, you know, I bring this to, to Tim, the commander, squadron commander is the SEL. And I'm like, Hey man, I just, I just got this ask from a buddy of mine who is a former JSOC guy, um, former OGA operator. Like the ask is valid. Um, I think my, my inclination, my gut is telling me that we should move on it. So I end up, you know, I get verbal execute authority from Tim. He and I kind of put some contingencies in place with regard to the existing team there at RTOC as far as QRF capability and, uh, you know, ground Kazabat capability. But we bump over to the other side of the airport to do some mission planning with my buddy, uh, OGA Dave. So I grab uh, one of my most trusted PJ homies, Alex, um, bump over to the, the other side of the airport to do some mission planning with OGA Dave. We come up with the scheme of maneuver, kind of the key tasks that have to occur, go, no go criteria. And, you know, we do about 30 mission, 30 minutes of mission planning, and then we, we roll on it. So all the key tasks that we put into place, um, you know, everything kind of happens the way that we expect it to, but we get to our vehicle drop-off point, our VDO, where we dismount the vehicles and start moving to our target location, like our, our link up location where we had asked this woman to move to, um, via escort so we get to our link up location which ends up being this massive garage building that splits the internal and external side of the airport it it rides right on the border of the airport we hit it we clear it as we're as we're moving past the building we notice a bunch of uh kind of like shady looking dudes um that are off at a reasonable enough standoff distance that we can PID weapons, but they're not presenting any threat at the time. So we drop a couple guys to hold security on them as we start to enter and clear the building. So they're essentially preventing anybody ingressing the building that we're trying to clear as our designated link up location to go rescue this girl. But she's not there when we get there. She's not at, at this designated link up location. Uh, so we clear the structure, begin to back clear. As we're back clearing, we start doing like a verbal call out for her and she's nowhere to be found. As we continue to call out for her, she starts responding from the south side of the building. Like, I'm over here. It's me. Um, I move to like a garage door that's bent to try and like gain access external to the building. Uh, and very quickly we find a window that's open that we, so we can move through the South side of this building towards her to go rescue her. Okay. So it's an important question that I have to ask though. Sure. You're like, you're two and a half feet tall. Is this window (laughs) 16 inches off the ground that you're going to be able to access it? Because I got to be honest with you, if it's a normal window, like who did you stand on? I got, I got a lot of follow on. I I understand that there's, so for me, it's like, uh, maybe, we'll call it chest height for mo- Okay. For- so it's one of those windows that's on the ground, like in the basement <laughs> yeah. in Midwest homes. Yeah. Okay. Got yeah. it. No, I, that's the only part that I really, I was really <laughs> I worried about was like, I just, 
I appreciate yeah, yeah. I appreciate your concern, Aaron. Thanks. No, I, I just I want you to be included. I'm an inclusive guy, Sean. Nice. And I did I hate it when people are height restrictive. <laughs> They're diametrically challenged. So nice. Okay, so we got we got this window. Yep. So uh we find the window and you know, anytime an amount situation, CQB situation, before you move external to a structure to go do something else, typically there's always a conversation about it, right? You're always being very deliberate about what you're doing. So in my mind, I'm creating this conversation about what's about, you know, with regard to what's going to happen next. And as I'm having this conversation uh, with myself to eventually talk to the rest of the team, which is like me, Alex, OGA Dave, um, a Marine Corps gunnery sergeant named Tom. Um, Alex goes YOLO right through the window with with OGA Dave. (laughs) And I'm like, as he's going YOLO through the window, I'm like, cool. I have just lost control. I have lost. That was my idea. I have lost. I have lost tactical. (laughs) I've lost tactical control. I have lost tactical (laughs) control of this situation. So I, I use every last ounce of strength and, uh, I don't know, vertical competence, if you will, to lift myself (laughs) up into the window to pull security. All those kipping CrossFit, all those kipping CrossFit pull-ups finally helped out because like the only bar muscle up that you've ever done is when your short ass reaches up and then you got to just get up there and make it happen. I mean, it's, it's good. It's good if you're short, but you can still squat a fuck ton of weight, right? Got to stay, got to work for something, but anyway, protect that ego. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if you mean like 135, we're good, right? But in, 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 anyway. It's only yeah. got to go four inches, man. Yeah. I think we already talked about this. It's not The range of motion is exceptionally small. But anyway, so like Alex, Alex and OG88 go YOLO through the window. And I hop up in the window to, you know, like try and provide them some standoff capability. I see like these three super shady looking dudes and Alex and OGA Dave are like pretty yoked and they essentially bum rush are, you know, the girl that we're trying to rescue. And it just so happened at the time that there were these five Taliban dudes that were uh, trying to essentially like detain her um, as she was moving from the location that she was hiding in to this garage on the airfield. She got intercepted by them. They physically had hands on her. Alex and OGA Dave rolled up on them, like ready to smoke these dudes. And for a myriad of reasons, like they didn't get into a gunfight or have to kill anybody. And they walked away with her and brought her, like brought her back to the target building. Um, I'm kind of like leaning out on the windowsill at this point, uh, trying to provide some standoff capability in overwatch for them just in case one of them got injured, got hurt. I still wanted to maintain comms between the guys who are providing security on our building, preventing any type of enemy ingress to our target location and still maintaining an eye on them. Like my tactical brain is like working in overdrive in this point. And I'm generally like, you know, not a great, historically not a great CQB guy. Right. But over the years, uh, and experience enough experience working with Ranger Regiment over the years that I feel like I uh, was able to maintain like a rel- relatively solid wherewithal, but 
Alex and OGA Dave were on and off the X in a matter of seconds with her. And they got back to the window, lifted her up through the window. We got her, brought her back, debriefed her. Um, you know, the gun, Marine Corps gunnery sergeant, Tom, got, you know, did her as a CI guy. He did a really thorough intel debrief with her. And, um, man, like, you know, I remember getting back and talking to Tim and I was like, I was like, you know, dude, like I, I've done some, I've done, I've done some pretty gangster shit over the years, but like, that was pretty fucking cool. And, <laughs> and then like, and like it, for me and Alex at that point, like, uh, you know, we started talking to her and we were like, wait, like, where's your family? Like, where's your mom? Where's your dad? Where's your dad? Where's your siblings? And we're that same period of darkness planning the next recovery operation for her immediate family, which eventually as Chris was kind of alluding to earlier ends up snowballing into this massive non-traditional personnel recovery effort. And it was aided by a number of different things. So it was, you know, human that you guys were getting on the ground. It was from text messages. It was, you know, from inclusion of, you know, very famously, there was, there was a lot of reports about uh, a young man named Paul Alcobi that was, that was essentially organizing large decentralized cells of folks that were trying to pass names and help, you know, funnel people in. But that's where you guys started really doing what pararescue is meant to do. That's where you guys really, you know, to, to each of you, you know, Chris as well, where you guys started really rolling downhill to, you know, that others may live. There was, there was a problem that you saw, you could see work, you could do work and it was non-traditional. And, you know, in some cases, like you had to you, do an actual risk assessment. Like people say risk assessment, they don't know what risk is. You guys were doing real risk assessments of, can we make this thing happen? And you were successful, you know, over and over again. Would you say that this is the time where, and Sean, you've, you've called it emotional investment, right? You, you've called it, you know, you started to really, you, you touched this thing and then you were, you were unable to kind of turn away from it because you realized that there was, there was a righteousness in what you, what you were doing. Did, did that start to happen here? Yeah, it absolutely did. You know, like it was, it was interesting. Like, you know, we designed, um, you know, that, that girl, her name is Aria. She has since become a close friend of mine, but you know, we, we developed that mission as a pretty vanilla IP recovery. And in a matter of seconds, it turned into a full scale hostage rescue. She based on what the Taliban said to her specifically in this moment on her account is that like, she thought she was dead in that moment. Mm -hmm. She was, she was certain her life was over and you know, as we, we continued to problem solve our way through that scenario and kind of keep the tactical momentum and keep like the aggressive nature of what we were doing, you know, on the higher side of the, like the way that the, you know, the way that it needed to be for us to be successful when it all, when we were done, we very quickly realized like you could see that like the fear, like the genuine fear in like her voice and, you know, just the, the complete and utter gratefulness that she had for us be, being able to be there for her at the right time. And, you know, that, that 
as soon as we touched that, like I was like, fuck, like we, we, you know, we need to start shifting our focus to helping as many people as we can. The very next day we got in contact uh, with her immediate family. We're, we're able to recover. Um, I think she had uh, her mom, her dad, and four younger siblings that we were able to recover as well as some other folks. Um, and that like those two specific events, I think generated enough momentum where like our, at least the focus for me really started to shift on like our job is now going to become trying to save as many people as we possibly can. And at this point, like the bro network starts to get lit on fire, right? Like all these different, you know, all these different lines, uh, lines of communication are opening up, um, you know, the gates start to get, you know, the, the main gates external to the out, the airport start to get completely overwhelmed. And instantly in my mind, I'm like, I want fucking nothing to do with those main gates, you know, like the, like the threat and the chaos is just way too high to take those head on. We need to be smarter and think more creatively about, you know, uh, coming up with, courses of action that circumvent the main gates. Yeah. And then Chris, I, I, I want to hear from you too, because you, you made it clear earlier, like you're like, Hey, we have a, the, the primary mission while we're here is we have to hold this alert for the people that are in the area. We're flying a shit ton of stuff in and out. And then I, I know that you were torn or I assume that you were torn between this righteous mission that you saw and, and this, uh, these other competing interests. And you're, you're, you guys are essentially trying to save the entire world right? Like the walls have been closing in on you this entire time. And, you know, I imagine that there had to be, you know, from the tactical level, there had to be something that you're just like, okay, cool. I, I have these other things that I'm thinking about. And that's one of the great things about our career field is that Sean, you, you can look and touch and do this thing that was completely non-standard. And you know that your, your bro, Chris has your back and that he's thinking about all these other things. And he's, he's making sure that you're not only protected, but that you guys are, are really fleshing out the entire mission and that you're starting, you know, Chris, you're, you're covering down on things that need to be handled, you know, without, without Sean even asking, like, can, I'm going to step away because we've been going for, uh, you know, two hours and I'm old, but I, I'd like to hear your answer on, you know, what, what things were you focusing on and how did, how did you support the overall function that was going on as Sean was, was fleshing out this kind of new line of effort. Yeah. I mean, I mean, by this point, you know, we're about 48 hours post the initial shock. Things are starting to normalize. Um, as far as, um, essentially that insidious effect, we're kind of getting used to, uh, the state that we're living in, we are, well, I'm beginning to realize that there are hundreds of thousands of people that are trying to get where I'm at right now. Um, with that being said, um, after the, the op that Sean talked about, um, there was like a, a team meeting where we all acknowledged that we hung it out, out, hung it out there a little bit more than we wanted to. And it wasn't planned that way. And, we kind of agreed with saying without saying we weren't going to accept that much risk again. However, we can still 
get on the same page and begin to do some things that would be helpful um, to get people inside the gates. Um, for me, um, and I, I think you wanted to talk about John is like our relationship is um, the simplest way for, for you and I to put our relationship is if people know us individually or know us together as we all, we both want the same things um, generally, but I think we attack it way differently, like completely differently. And um, I guess at this point, I realized that you were the focal point for the taskings and the, the intel. And I just basically realized I need to step back and focus like 90% of my energy on just kind of making sure the dues were good, making sure that we were still holding alert. Um, I wanted to get in there and I would later on when stuff was more formatted. But at that point with you and Tim focused, it kind of left me to kind of, if the wheels were going to fall off the bus, I need to notice it first and kind of kind of stay back at that point. Um, I kind of lead with a rational mind. And at that point you were, um, and a lot of the guys are extremely emotionally invested. And I was just trying to be the, no, and you did a phenomenal job. Measure right, that when it got I think that too far. Um, we're lucky that we were able to have, you know, that degree of balance internal to the team because you're, you know, I, I absolutely, you know, once, once Alex and I successfully executed that rescue and then rolled on the, you know, the rescue of her immediate family the very next day and, you know, saw the, the net effect of that, of, you know, bringing a family back together and, you know, saving this girl that was being, that was essentially going to be executed by the Taliban, like was on a, you know, like no kidding, like on a Taliban kill list because of the fact that she worked directly for president Ghani. Like, yeah, we got emotionally invested very, very quickly. And as a result of that, you know, I think that, you know, looking back on that specific operation, like I, I thought about several times how we could have mitigated risk better, how we could have executed uh, executed a more tactically sound operation. Um, however, you know, in the moment you start to get really emotionally tied to these things. And I think when it was all said and done, I was really grateful that you were there inserting yourself into the situation the way that you did, because we, you know, it gave us, you were the mechanism that kind of gave us those checks and balances. And, as we found out later, you know, a few days later when we had to respond to the Abigate, uh, you know, the SBAS blast, we, you know, we still had to be available to execute our primary mission set. You know, the calculus in my mind was that our primary mission set was one that was extremely low probability. At no point did I think an aircraft was going to fall out of the sky and we were going to have to go execute an IP recovery. In the meantime, we had this glaring problem that was both urgent and very time sensitive. And the consequence of not executing on it was, um, you know, lives lost. And we were really uniquely postured and had 
the relationships on in place to be extremely effective at acting on that mission set. Um, so that's what we decided to do. I want to talk about trust a little bit because we, you know, we say the word and people don't understand what it means and people don't understand why we as pararescue men or we as special operators, we develop that trust or how we develop that trust. But that's what y'all are talking about. Like, you know, Sean, I'm sure in the moment, you know, there's probably some friction because we're all grown men, right? Like we have a flat organization. It's okay to tell your brother to fuck off to his face and, and punch him in the face. And I'm sure there was some of that friction there. But in the end, I can hear in your voice the gratitude that comes from being able to trust Chris on the X. And Chris, like I can hear that, you know, you understood what he was doing. You may not have agreed with it 100% of the time. But man, you trusted him to do the right thing and, and to go forward a, as a grown man, as an operator, as a fellow PJ, and to really get after you know something something pretty righteous that we agree to. Where do you think that that trust comes from? Do, it, is it born in the pool next to you know the guy that's next to you at Indoc? Like Sean, I went to Indoc with you, man. Like I, I met, I remember the dorm room that I met you in that we talked yeah. is you know you were a, you were a senior airman with you know more experience than I had in spades. I was a dorky Air Force, brand new baby staff sergeant, and you had already had a combat deployment as a love Bravo. Like I remember that conversation to this day. And, you know, Chris, I may have been your supervisor in Vegas, but you were light years ahead of me and you still are in, in your career as a PJ. But I'd say we all have a, we, we establish that trust. So, you know, I guess the question I want to ask is, you know, do, do you think that we, do you think that we have a way in the pipeline that we we develop that trust? Is it is it forged in battle? Is it something that that we select for? Or Chris, do you think that we do you think that we attract those people that are that are worthy of trust and that that end up performing in these situations? I would say nowadays <laughs> forged in smarter base. Right? Fair enough. Deep? No, good. That's a great question. Like it's after exactly what I was asking for. Thanks. Um, I'm not going to get into a, uh, you know, discussion about, you know, where we are with the, um, essentially the development, um, the duty off the street until, you know, ultimately being on the team, I think it's it's too complicated to truly put a pin on it. Um, I, I think it's a little bit of instinct. You know, I, I roll off my instinct a lot, and I really can't explain it. It sounds cheesy and whatever, but um, I think those times, I'm mean, just that blunt conversation, you know. Um, I've never been a person to tell someone what they want to hear. I think they ask me my opinion, I'm going to tell them. So, um I think there was always a level of trust. There were some definitely some times where maybe um, I wouldn't say trust was degraded, but like I guess concern. I guess because like guys were getting gas, guys running on a couple hours of sleep at this point. Twenty-four hour operations, not enough water, not enough support. Worst possible scenario. I, I I think truly the only thing that saved me was that. I kind of, you know, put a gun where there wasn't a gun and kind of accepted that role. And I was just kind of, I would pop in and, and you know, do a security detail or, or go help with like a big bus movement. But then I would kind of just see where everybody's at, kind of check on it. And I kind of developed this, 
two nap a day cycle. So in like a 24 hour period, I'd sleep like three hours in a four hour because, um, before all this shit happened, like POD was our main time, but we get tasks during the day. So I basically decided that like, I better rather yeah. be a little sleepy all the time and get used to it than completely fucked one day. So, um, I guess what I'm getting at with all this is like, there, there was some definitely some friction between Sean. We were, you know, leading with different parts of our mind, one being the rational, one being the, uh, not necessarily emotional, but like, um, I think we balanced each other all right. Cause you know, being too conservative, being too risky, I, I think you gotta have those, those hard talks. And I, I think we were able again with a squad size element to make arguably one of the bigger impacts in that whole sequence of events. And, um, and it wasn't always good as we'd like it to. And I think I won't say it's lucky, but I, I think we maybe dodged some, you know, figurative and literal bullets at times, um, just making judgment calls off instinct. But to, to really say trust is made by holding your breath or um, I, I think the old system and, and parts of the new system weed out the people that you can't trust or aren't as mm -hmm. easy to trust. It's kind of like that. Yeah. that you, don't, it, you don't know you what know? it is and it's hard to describe, but I'll tell you what, you know it when you see it, you know it when you see it in another person, you're like, that's a bro right there. I may, you know, I may not like him. We may not agree on everything, but damn it. I know that if it, if it comes down to it, I can trust that guy and he can go execute. And that kind of, that kind of brings us to, you know, the next event here. Uh, it was highly emotional and we don't need to go into it because, you know, again, we already alluded to, there was another force on the ground that was kind of primary and that had a, a different mission set while you guys were trying to do this stuff. But, but Abbey gate was really the breakwater for this event. Right. So it got the most national attention back home. Everybody was extremely emotionally invested in this thing. It was the first time that we'd lost, you know, not just one, but 13 Americans in a lot of time. Um, Sean, what do you got? Yeah. I mean, but before we dive into the Abbey gate event, I think it's important. You, to, we got to have a signal. We yeah. got to have a hand signal. Like yeah. I, I have a thing that we agreed upon on timeline and you, yeah. I keep going to stuff and then you're like, wait, hold on. Yeah. I want to talk about this. Well, you know, there's a lot that happened between the rescue of Aria on the night of the 17th and then the Abbey gate, you know, like, okay. You so, know, and that was about nine, that was about nine days for everybody that's tracking. So 17 yeah. through the 26th. So okay. man, like the, we very, to me, this became like an almost like an ethical and a moral dilemma. You know, we were, we were staring down like this impossible problem, but we had a unique, really unique, unique capability and skill set to put a small dent in this impossible problem. And in the meantime, like a, um, my relationship with this guy, Sean G, uh, enabled us to gain a tremendous amount of efficiency in what we were trying to execute. He showed up with this other dude. His call sign was C spray. Um, former army special forces guy and uh, ground branch operator. Isn't that the drink? Isn't that the really girly uh, sugary drink that girls drink in college and get hung over C spray? Maybe. I don't know. Is it not? No. All right. No. All right. Oh, sea breeze. Okay. That's the drink that they, it's yeah. a sea breeze. Sorry. Yeah. But so anyway, so these guys show up and they have, um, 
com- congressional approval, uh, all these, you know, the required authorities to show up and with the help and leverage of the, the Air Force. So they essentially give us the ability to run our own unilateral expel operations. So we're taking all these different lines of communication, all these different different non-traditional PR avenues with all the different relationships that we've built, circumventing the madness at the main gates, um, and using C-17s to batch all these people together and then exfil them on our own uh, with really with the help of some state department assets. And it was just, it was incredible what we were able to do. I think overall we, the total numbers from a percentage perspective, I think the the total exfil numbers were like 123,000 people were evacuated. And I think we collectively were touched about 20,000 of those people. Like we had obligated some of our combat mission support folks to running this alternative uh, air, uh, air terminal on an adjacent um, apron. And uh, the way that we came together with this commercial entity, um, a lot of folks know it as like TF 6.8, but really what it came down to was us working together with them to run these multiple different non-traditional recovery operations and man like it at a point like once we had shifted from and gotten through the turbulence that you know alex and i and a couple other guys being like really emotionally invested and executing these rescue and recovery operations despite the risk involved like you know, we, there was a couple key points over the course of those nine days where we had some really tough moments as a team and we had to iron out these issues and problems and come back together and objectively assess the risk, figure out a right way to roll on it and incorporate everybody on the team in a way to kind of maximize the efficiency of the recovery operations. And I think that a big part of the narrative is that, you know, these guys that were kind of hesitant and I know I'm certain that Chris feels this way too, is that, you know, once you touch it and once you bring a person or a family or the, the toddler of a, a wife of like a commando or a Katehas guy and from external to the airfield, um, once you see that through to the end, to the point where you're watching that family get on a C-17, like it, it touches you in a way that you know is really meaningful. And you know that in that moment and in that situation, you are the best trained, most uniquely suited individual to make that happen from click to bang, from the moment that you get an ask from your bro back in the States that you got to go rescue this person and why uh, to the point where you're watching him and his family get on a C-17 to fly to the UAE or wherever the fuck they're going. Like, you know, in that moment that 
you know, God put you on earth for a reason and injected you into that specific situation for a specific purpose. Like I, you know, I know you're not a super religious guy and honestly, neither am I, but man, like talk about the right, like the right group of dudes, the right relationships, the right, everything being in place at the right time to facilitate, um, thousands of lives being saved and like the, you know, the sheer valor and degree of aggressiveness and focus and, you know, man, if I, it's truly incredible to think about what we collectively as a team were able to execute over that period of time. Um, but all that to say, uh, yeah. So over the course of that nine days, like we got the fuck after it. And, uh, we had some, as a team, we had some really, we had some friction that we had to overcome, but I think ultimately we were able to refocus, gain a high degree of efficiency. Um, you know, and ultimately really work together in a way that was pretty fucking successful. Oh, okay. Yeah, great. I guess that's the end of the podcast. Fucking hell of a fucking point there. That, I mean, I don't have anything to say, man. Like that, that, that is absolutely outstanding. And I, I can't even begin to imagine the things that you guys had to overcome and that like, it was just from everything from an interpersonal standpoint to the tactical aspect, to laying the groundwork from days and weeks beforehand of, of those, those personalities that you, you guys really ended up paying dividends from everybody. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that you guys were able to do the things that you do in, in, in this real time environment, you know, it, I'm reminded of the movie that they made about Sully, right. The guy that landed the plane on the, the Hudson river. And, you know, one, a true life thing was like, they were able to replicate what he did, but it took, you know, experienced pilots, 17 runs in the sim to do what he did in real time. And I liken that to what you guys did. Like, yeah, maybe somebody could replicate what you guys did, but you guys did it in real time with no support, with no help. And you guys really lived up um, to that name and to the motto the entire time that you guys were out there. And, and you, you deserve nothing um, but the adulation that, that hopefully is, is coming, you know, down the pike and in, in the form of, you know, some, some decorations and stuff. We're going to touch on that when we get done. But, you know, I think, and I'm going to put this out there, I think I've learned from previous mistakes are we ready to move on? Are we ready to talk about the next big event? We, we don't need to dive into it again. Cause no, you know, I mean like, I understand you guys weren't there, but no, I think that at this point, moving on to the Abbey gate, like, you know, we had some really close ties to the events that occurred at the Abbey gate and, uh, mm-hmm. the things that happened that day at the Abbey gate, you know, from a emotional perspective, from a stress perspective, um, you know, like we started to see cracks in the foundation, uh, with the team, you know? Um, so, but yeah, like definitely, like, I think the Abbey gate is <laughs> the next, the next hurdle to talk about. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you know, I think I, I said it before when I was summarily told to STFU and be quiet for a second, but you know, we, that was the next, the next big event, you know, it it was terribly emotional and it really, you sort of forget that not everybody cares about you and what your friend group 
cares about. Like back here in America, I can tell you, you know, we were we were eagle eyeing this this exfil and you know whatever because we had people that were personally invested in it. But the, the American public largely was just like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess stuff is still happening in Afghanistan. They had twenty years of fatigue of caring about it. Um, this really was a huge deal. You know, it was a, it was a mass casualty event. We lost thirteen uh, American service members. It was it was a really big deal. And I know you guys, um, you know, have some stuff to say about that. So we don't need to hit into the nitnoid um, stuff that's going on, but just, just for the aftermath and how this changed the whole scenario is what I want to focus on, right? Like the event happened. Um, it, it happened. We, we took losses. That's, that's never good. And we always respect the 13 that we lost, but really I want to focus on, you know, how did that change operations? Because, you know, this had to be, this is, you know, August 26th, this is a long time into this thing for you guys of no food, no sleep, no support. You have other entities that are flying in and I'm not going to, you know, they did it for their own motivation, but you know, you had a lot of things that were distracting away from the the real thing here, which was like, we need to exfil as many people as we possibly can. We need to get off target because we're getting out of country. So we don't necessarily need to talk about the, you know, the soup to nuts of Abbey Gate, but you know, moving on from that, like in the days that followed, how did that change your focus if it did? Well, I think that like, man, so like leading up to the Abbey Gate, you know, just to summarize, quick summary of the last nine days, non-traditional PR. Did you just go back and, again? I, know, just, I, I, even asked bef- I even asked beforehand. Give me I even one asked second. beforehand if you're ready. To go- and you said we were good. Okay, good. The, it's the Yippie Kaye, bro. <laughs> Shout out yeah. to Yippie Kaye. But uh, 10 second summary of the last nine days high threat, non-traditional PR, oftentimes under, you know, hails of hails of gunfire, like going out on objectives where zero unit partner force guys have been, been killed to go execute these rescue and recoveries, right? Just to provide a little bit of context of the environment. So as the days are going on leading up to the Abbey Gate, threat reporting is skyrocketing. So like the, the peripheral chatter around what's going on or what's soon to come is going through the roof. And we know that, you know, we know that something's bad is going to happen. We just, we just don't know what. And at this point, like we're, we're the conversation about re-engaging in the Alamo plan is happening again Mm -hmm. because because of the degree of chatter and threat reporting and um you know all the guys that are still in the airfield are like fuck man like we might have to alamo again and the conversation is even shifting to if we get overrun what are we going to do so the prtf collectively has like a get out of town plan guys that we're we're working with are like we got a bunch of gas stowed and we're going to drive to iran or we're going to drive to pakistan like the like that's where our mind is at this particular juncture the morning of the 26th we're executing recovery operations and still and the conversation is still trending towards we really have to throttle things back because of the degree of like the threat reporting and uh it's just kind of getting getting to a point where we know we're hanging it out there more than we should. 
And, uh, sure. You know, guys are out there on the 26th. Tim and I go out there on that morning to go check on the dudes and happen to roll up on this Navy corpsman named Max Soviak. And while we roll up there to go check on the dudes, like, you know, uh, Alex, Greg, a couple other guys are just managing chaos, trying to kind of recover their prioritized list of people. But this one Navy corpsman is sitting on the ground uh, with these 10 recently orphaned Afghan kids. And the environment outside of the walls at this point is like, you know, the Taliban is stealing babies, particularly young females. And a lot of these Afghan parents often believe that the best case for their survival, for their family, for their children is to like crowd surf these kids, you know, uh, up and over the gates or through the chain link fence, up and over the T walls. And, um, the kids that successfully made it over the T walls and past the concertina wire, um, you know, ended up with guys like this Navy corpsman, Max Soviak. So Tim and I roll up immediately recognize that on the morning of the 26th, that, you know, Max Soviak is sitting there with all these kids and we, we roll up and we're like, Hey dude, like, what are you doing with all these fucking kids? And he's essentially like, Hey, that, I have no idea. Like, I'm just trying to take care of them right here, right now, because that's, that's essentially all I can do. So I'm like, Matt, I'm like, Hey man, like I'll stay with the kids for a second. Go find your squad leader. Let me talk to your squad leader. So I get with Max's squad leader and I essentially negotiate with the squad leader to let me take Max to, uh, up to the role to, with all these orphans, because at this point we have a, physical location for uh, basically like a collection point for unaccompanied minors. Sure. So was that run by the Norwegians? Is that where the Norwegians come into? Yeah. The Norwegians were kind of running this facility because it was directly adjacent to the hospital. So Max, uh, me, Tim and Max and these 10 fucking kids uh, getting a, a armored land cruiser drive up to the hospital drop all these drop all these kids off who were fucking dude fucking terrified and at that point like you know as a father of three like i'm starting to get some cracks in the foundation because i'm like you know the you have to realize the situation that these afghans were in in order to just basically deliberately orphan their children you know oftentimes they were throwing their kids over these T walls, unknowingly uh, throwing them into over like a 20 foot T wall with two or three layers of concertina wire on the other side. So a lot of these times, these babies that were getting crowd surfed and thrown over the T walls, like that dude, they just weren't fucking making it, you know? And that was a really, really hard thing to navigate and a hard thing to see. But in this moment, Tim and I, Tim and I had the ability to, positively affect that situation and remove these kids from, you know, a, not only high threat environment, but an environment with no food, no water, um, 
And, uh, you know, with the help of Doc Soviak. So we get all these kids to the hospital, get Max back out. And in the meantime, like I'm kind of processing what just happened and very, you know, like pretty impressed with this Navy corpsman who's an E3 or E4. And I immediately start having a conversation with him about pararescue. I'm like, bro, I was like, you, I was like, I don't like, I don't know who the fuck you are, but like, just always recruiting. I like like, it. Yeah. Just like stealing talent. I was like, do you know, do you know what pararescue is? Because you need to be a fucking DJ. (laughs) Like you need, like when you're done, when we get home from here, like you need to fucking call me. So we get Max back out at the main gate. I give him like a big old bear hug and I'm like, bro, like be safe. Uh, Sure enough. Max gets killed when the S vest goes off. So from like our teams, the way that we touched one of the ways that we touched the situation at the Abigate was uh, with Doc Soviak and his like ability to be cool, calm and collected amidst all that chaos, caring for, these small kiddos who did not have the ability to care for themselves. Yep. Yeah. And you know, Max, Max was from Ohio. I remember this distinctly, um, you know, as these events unfolded and as they got put out there, because, you know, obviously, uh, man, I'm, I'm an Ohio guy. I'm a big 10 guy. And it was one of those things where he was killed a couple hours from where I grew up. Um, it, that was, that was a terrible thing that, that you guys had to endure. Um, how, how did that affect the team, man? Because until this time, like you get, go ahead, Chris. Um, yeah, before we get into that, so I think the original question was, was Abigate a turning point in so many words? And I think it was. And just like a general reminder is like, we didn't plan this. We didn't plan to have every C-17 in the fleet flood in over this, you know, 12 to 14 day period and stack as many posts, people climbing on planes, getting caught in landing gears, um, all these things. So we were, there was no playbook. There was no processes yeah. to vet whether this person was an AMSIT, like which part of identification, like talk about HI being a tactical nightmare. The gates were broad swing gates where if you opened it, about 150 people would push through before you close it back um at this point we're deep into it where you know tens of thousands of people's water bottles feces trash people are even in the gates they're suffering because it's summertime guess what in afghanistan so just to kind of paint the picture up until this point with the abbeyate detonation we hadn't lost um obviously we're talking about a lot of people suffering and dying but the turning point was when um, this implied threat. I mean, we've been buzzing from APUs burning nonstop. There's gunshots all day long. You don't know if they're warning shots. You don't know what they are. Um, so my point is, at this point, deviance is normalized. Like, people are just like, you're in it. And I think when that big event, I think the narrative and American priorities shifted to like, all right, we're going to take as many more people as we can, but we're going to have to put a lid on this eventually and um, move on, so to speak. And 
I think the reality sets in that moral ethical dilemma is like we could still be there fucking flying people out, literally, um, that actually legitimately needed it. Um, then there was also like, and it was remarkable with the, the, the crews. I mean, C-17 crews that weren't used to, you know, hundreds of people running on their plane and they're just flying people out seamlessly. But there was another problem being created sure. is like, yes, we're getting these people out, but where are we taking them? What's the next? So, like I said, none of this was actually truly planned. It was just, like I said before, it was a pickup game. So, like, pro- new problems were or new considerations were coming up, you know, as you went and people were just trying to do good everywhere. And it was so asymmetric because I mean, on one side you have Afghan commandos holding the flock on the line. You have all these coalition partners. You got Brits, you know, you got army, Navy, Marines that had flooded in before this. And it's just, there's no true way to like, for a human brain to like yeah. actually, yeah, and I passed that picture. Black and white. Day. What's what? So the 62nd so. Airlift Wing was uh, one of the you know the primary tails in uh, Operation Allies Refuge, to follow on out Operation Allies Welcome, and seeing the historic picture of you know I think it was what 800 people that they put into a single C-17. They were they weren't even supposed to be able to take off. Like it actually exceeded the capability of the aircraft they were supposed to take off. So, um, yeah. It, it was insane. And you're dead right, Chris. Like none of that was planned. Like this was not a deliberate thing. This is something that people figured out on the fly in response to these things. So as we get this done and as we start deciding that like, Hey, there's, there has to be a light to the end of the tunnel. Sean, you were emotionally invested in it. How did you start moving that way? Like what, what came in between, you know, the aftermath of, of Abbey gate, the aftermath of this terrible, tragic thing and balancing, you know, the mission that you, you felt still needed to be done. When did you start moving towards, okay, it's time to leave because now the risk is getting too high. Yeah. I mean, man, it was extremely chaotic. Like, you know, after, after the response, um, the, you know, the threat reporting and everything happening, like the emotions running high, like, the overwhelming degree of stress like man like we were working so hard we were forgetting like literally forgetting to eat and the uh you know after we responded to the abbey gate and like worked the mass casualty at the roll to everything stood down the next day because you know we had to honor the fallen, do the ramp ceremony. Um, and then at that point it became like back to that continual risk calculus. Like we have to protect the dudes, you know, but it's, it's a funny thing, man, because like the calls kept on coming, like the calls for help kept on coming. Uh, we, I got added to a thread that was like at, uh, at the SecDef level where we were getting an ask to recover somebody from Admiral McRaven. And, um, you know, this individual, no pressure. Yeah. Like no, yeah. Like no pressure. Right. Um, so, you know, we turned operations off on, um, on the 27th, we started packing ISUs, 
tried to restart refocusing the team to like get sleep uh, and start prepping for expo because we knew that it was coming soon. And on the 28th, we turned ops back on and we started executing rescues again. And again, that was how many times is that for you guys that you guys have packed up, unpacked, packed up, unpacked that had to be supremely frustrating. Like how uh, hard is it to keep motivation at that point? I mean, it was tough, but like, it's again, like kind of this, this underlying theme through this entire period of time, like, is that it became a, it was like a, the most profound moral and ethical dilemma that you had ever faced. Right. So it's like, you know, do you, do you just shut it down and give up or do you just, do you, do you keep charging? Because like, that's what you've been fucking trained to do. Never fucking quit. Right. So fucking who ya, bro. Yeah. So like 28 and this, this was a big deal for the team too, because like, Tim and I got together, stood side by side. Gentlemen, we're turning operations off. 28th rolls around. Gentlemen, we're turning operations <laughs> back God on. dang it, man. You like, how, like, how you are know? you supposed to even so like, do so with So, like, that? Chris at this point is like, he's like, Sean, like, really, bro? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, really? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Really, bro? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So, really, bro? You know, but like, they, we're turning them on. I gotta unpa- I gotta pack this ISU for the sixth time, you yep. piece of shit. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to pack? Yeah. So like, please tell me too. You guys had like zodiacs and and uh, like engines and shit. Like, did you have to pack? <laughs> yeah. So oh, stuff that you would never even use. I always love when we would take dive equipment to Afghanistan, but like in in Helmand, like bro, there's not even a river. It's called the Helmand River Valley but only nominally like we're, we're, there's not going to be a dive. They like, you tell me I got two ISUs full of dive gear and side scan sonar. That, that shit's a heavy bro. Yeah. And, and I think like an important like topic is, and, and it's like the human aspect of this is like literally every one of these dudes have not only like, families but they have wives they have kids they have serious girlfriends they have a unit back home that's not even really sure what the fuck is going on so like the 48th is kind of like the reason that kind of reminded me of this is like dudes are kind of like balancing keeping like their wives like informed that they're alive you guys are are jobbing um, save by the way like that comes with risk as well yeah Yeah, and there's risk, and it's, it's, but it's another stressor, right? Then the reason I bring this up is I remember our DOs like, hey, like I think we're like deep into this thing. He's like, I understand your guys' situation. He's a very it- articulate, very, you know, was that pointed guy? person. He's like, just let me know what I have to leave behind. I need a list. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm not gonna. But like. It got to the point where like people weren't messing with us because they knew we were like into some into some things that are like not normal. But like it got to the yeah. point where like we might just have to oh, like wow. leave the place on what you're wearing. But you know that like I said, you know, so like, came around and that was yeah. like the last of the last rescue operations we executed. We had we had a list of 48 names and we recovered 12. And I walked away from. Uh, kind of like uh not one of the main gates kind of like one of our 
um, one of our avenues that we had to circumvent the main gates and um, the, at that particular juncture, like the gates became like everybody kind of knew that the Americans were leaving. There was a very high sense of urgency. The gates began to get overrun. Like the zero units, like uh, came back with like a hail of heavy machine gun fire while we were external to the main gates and we got as many people as we could. And I rolled back in and I remember looking at Tim and being like, yo bro, like we're done. Like unless we're done and there's, there's nothing more that we can do at this point. And, um, how did that feel, man? Like, like it felt fucking awful. <laughs> I had to imagine. Yeah. Like I, I hate to tee, I hate to tee you up to talk about the worst moment of your life, but yeah. God dang, man, I can hear, I can hear the pain in your voice and man, I, that's not what we do, but, but you, you had to make that call. You're the SEL. Like yeah. you, you had to make the call for those other yeah. people that are under your charge. Well, I mean like it, at a certain point, like all the gates were closed, buttoned up and there were no more like then like just like the Bagram JTE, like the HKIA JTE had to be kicked into motion. And at that particular juncture, like we didn't have a choice. Yeah, man. So, so you guys pack up for the final time and this time it's the actual real time, man, Chris, what did it feel like when you stepped on that plane and you were leaving? Like it, it wasn't bullshit this time. You actually had to pack up. You actually met your timeline. You got on board and you guys were leaving. How, how did you, how did you guys feel? What was, what was the general feeling on the team? <laughs> yeah. Fool me once. Shame. Listen, I was like, yeah, I've, shown, right. I've stepped on these wires about- at three forty-five in the morning for a six thirty <laughs> yeah. show time before, dude, you're not fooling me. Yeah. I, I, I think it, it took, like a good four days being out of Afghanistan before it, like, I don't <laughs> I'm never back in my eyes again for a while. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, ultimately I, I think that's we not did a pretty question. good job. The, the, I mean, the good job is, is not brought everything question, out, no, man. Like you guys, I, I, I don't even have the words to describe yeah. how proud of you this career field is and how proud of you America is. Like I can't speak for America all, all in all, but man, like it's a pass fail event. The fact that you guys are awake and that you brought every single one of your people home and the fact that you saved as many people as you did, that's not in question. You know what I mean? Like, and I hope you hear that for me. Like that, that was a real moment between you and me that I probably shouldn't recorded, but man, uh, you didn't just do good. You, you did well because that's how you do. And you did good. Like Superman does good, but man, y- your impact is unquestionable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's exactly well, it. Thanks that's for how that. I, you know how you, affirmations. You, kinda, you got at me before with a couple of jokes. Yeah. But now I uh, take that because I know how you hate to recognize in public. So take that motherfucker. Hey, it's just, first of all, it's just on my ankle and up near my knee where you duct tape me, you son of a bitch. And it's funny how you're making fun of me for something that you have affected me my entire life about when you duct tape me and threw me into a pool and made me drown proof from my own handcuff. key. That's a, that's a story for later. My guy. It was good times. Sean, how'd you feel leaving, man? 
Um, like there was a lot more fucking work to do, and like we were, you know, like it was, it was, we, it was an impossible situation. We didn't have a say in the matter, and you know, at that point, like the gates got buttoned up. There was nobody else coming in, and like I said before, you know, the at that point, the HKIO JTE, like you know, phase zero or one of that JTE had kind of kicked into effect, and um we were just hydrating and surviving and trying to, um, you know, living meal to meal, baby. Yeah. We know de- that demilling. We had to demill a lot of shit. And then, um, you know, we were, uh, we were lucky enough to get on the plane together. Um, bring it, bringing everybody home with full accountability of all our people, which for me was fucking paramount. And, um, you know, eventually make our way like back to back home. But interestingly enough, like when we got back home, like the calls for help didn't stop, you know, and Mm -hmm. like the, uh, the amount of effort that Alex and Greg specifically, I think put into helping Afghans get out of country months after the fact, because of how, how so closely tied in we were to it, you know, like, like their, their efforts were truly incredible. Um, so, you know, sitting on that was really, really tough getting text messages and phone calls in the middle of the night for months after the fact was certainly not ideal because like, you know, we weren't really in a position to positively affect rescues anymore. Um, but I tell you what, man, like a lot of, uh, a lot of great AARs and leadership lessons learned coming out of the situation. Right. And it's a referendum on modern warfare too. Like the fact that you guys could be in this situation and 96 hours later be in Germany or Las Vegas or Davis Monathan. Holy shit. Like you're humans aren't meant to process that level of trauma. Humans aren't meant to go through what you guys went through. The fact that you're just on this phone call right now or on this, this little video chat yeah. that we have. That's right probably why it took two years to fucking make happen. <laughs> but you, but you know what? It's a story that needs to be told, man. Um, so I, I've, I've had the distinct pleasure of working for the 62nd airlift wing up here in joint base Lewis McCord. I've had the distinct pleasure of watching, 96 distinguished flying crosses be awarded, um, you know, to the folks that worked on those aircraft and that were able to affect the evacuation. And man, they have a, they have a proud tradition of, you know, mobility aircraft and, uh, you know, the 62nd airlift wing mobility, uh, airlift wing warriors, they're awesome. They're crazy. So, you know, let's, it's a dumb thing, but, but I want to talk about it because unless we talk about it, we won't like. You know, I assume there's a shit ton of high level decorations that came out of here is, is the guys that saved, you know, 10,000 people, um, you know, moving to, towards those aircraft. So, um, you know, is there anybody that you, you want to highlight or a- anybody that you want to talk about specifically, um, you know, that went above and beyond? You don't have to use their name. You can just describe what they did. I think that's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, I mean, like every, everybody on the team that touched these rescue, it's rescue operations went far above and beyond what would have been reasonably expected of them. 
Um, sure. Yeah. You know, Major Smith and I have been in a kind of like an ongoing battle to get everybody recognized at the appropriate level. Like right now we have guidance. What from, do you mean? What do you mean? On, what do you, I'm sorry. I, I don't understand. What do you mean ongoing battle? 96 distinguished flying crosses have already been put out there. So, I mean. Yeah. I mean, like this, this is a hard forum to kind of discuss all that in, but um, mm -hmm. you know, like to, to be perfectly honest, you know, like we, uh, the absent has some really, uh, the absent has some really fucked up rules and regulations when it comes to awarding certain medals. Um, and that doesn't exist. Afset yeah. had went home before you yeah. guys started your operation, so, which is a yeah. weird thing to talk about. But like, I, I also think that objectively it's really hard to, uh, quantify on paper what we did. Like, the, you know, the amount of the date, the number of days and direct combat or navigating heavy machine gun fire or sniper fire or indirect fire to affect these rescue and recovery operations. But, you know, or the number of American lives saved, I think gets mm -hmm. lost on a lot of people like you AMSITs, which a lot of people don't realize, but our team collectively, you know, the 12 of us were directly responsible for rescuing about 1700 people, but directly facilitated the exfil of about 20,000 with this commercial mechanism that we work directly for or work directly with. And, um, we saved 3,900 people in Vietnam. So the, uh, yeah, man. Like, yeah, we're, we're in a, we're in a battle to get our team from the 83rd, the appropriate recognition they deserve. And fortunately we have, um, we're getting advocacy from, uh, Seat Colon Lopez and uh, Colon yeah. Lopez and Simsaf Bass. Like, you know, yep. we're getting advocacy from them, but unfortunately we're still in a fucking battle over it. These things take time. Administrivia is frustrating. Like I I'm sure that this process is going to work itself out. I'm sure cooler heads are going to prevail here, especially with a little bit of time, you know, post the event. And it's awesome that we have such friends like, you know, you know, chief bass. She's, she's come on the podcast twice. Um, we're hoping to get her on again, you know, before she comes up, you know, CZ we're in talks to get him on. He's just a busy cat, but now that he's sure. injured and he kind of hurt himself, I think it's going to be good. But Man, everybody realizes all the way up to everybody at SOCOM and JSOC realize the benefit of what you guys did on the ground. And that cannot be denied. You know what I mean? Like, you know, to see 96 distinguished flying crosses with me as a ground guy in the Air Force, the first thing I default to is like, oh, okay, cool. Well, how'd they get to the aircraft? And there's only one answer for that. You know, and, and I think it's like, again, the administrative, it'll clear itself. The gates, it'll clear itself. And, uh, and I think this is important to highlight for the career field and for those, those folks that yeah. are out there listening, still listening, you know, almost two hours and 45 minutes later. Like, yeah. I think this is a thing that we're going to be able to figure out. And I, I know you're not going to stop fighting for the dudes. And Chris, I know you're not going to stop fighting yeah. um, I mean, for the it, dudes and for everybody that supported. It's important for the career field. It's important for the guys that hung it all out there in a way that really nobody else did. It's important for their families to see them get that type of recognition. Um, but yeah, man, like we're definitely, uh, you know, we're beating that drum pretty hard. So 
we'll see how it shakes out, but you know, it, uh, the effort will not stop until, you know, we've met that objective for sure. <laughs> I don't know, oh, but I work better with a chip on my shoulder. So, uh, Yeah, I know. My phone's about to die, so I had to plug in. Your sideways dog, by the way. There we go. So, man, that was we covered a lot of ground. Um, and, bros, I, I really appreciate you guys coming on and telling the story. And I know it's been long in talks, and, and I, I get it. I'm going to open the floor to you, Chris. I'm going to open it up to you first. You can put whatever you want out there. Usually we end with, hey, you know, to the people in the audience, what's your advice what would you do to be a PJ? But for, for you, my man, the bird man that flies in any weather, AKA the long haired mustachioed tattooed man that I've come to love part American, Indian, native American, indigenous American, Christopher Wilson. No way. Actually, really American things no longer true. I did one of those That's- DNA things. It's not, not you were lied to by your whole family, your entire life. British until now. And now here That's we it. go. <laughs> yeah. Imagine so I'm going to open it up to you, man. Like you don't even have to adhere out. to anything. I don't care if you give advice, I, I, man. I want to, I want to give the floor to you. I want to say if there's any projects, like we're going to talk about stars and stri- or shields and stripes. We're going to talk about Pararescue Foundation. We're going to talk about some of those other things here at the end of this. But man, yeah. Chris, I just want to open the floor to you and give you the platform. Man, what you got? Yeah, I guess thanks for the platform. I guess the biggest plug I have for this whole thing and really the only reason I agreed to do it was to uh, just kind of document, you know, what our team did. Um, There's no perfect team, but this was the perfect team for this set of circumstances i mean um you know we had a lot of brand new guys that didn't know any better and that worked out good because they were just open sponges and we had a lot of guys that just balanced each other throughout with different talents um different opinions different motivators uh throughout and i think somehow some weird way it worked itself out um Obviously, you can't sit back and deliberately plan, you know, something like this. Um, It was just so, you know, asymmetric and so minute-to-minute at times. Um, Yeah, so for those guys, you know, you know who you are. Uh, A lot more funny stories. Um, (laughs) I think I did a pretty good job. I didn't mention anyone's name throughout, so I didn't have time. Ask for your permission. I'm a pretty private fellow myself, so me being on here is kind of a big deal. Um, um, yeah, so kind of prefer the shadows, so to speak. But um, I, I guess the question that you did have, you know, I guess there's always people. And I, I think there's a lot of 
excuses and people waiting for the right time and but like deep down you know you're the right guy for for something like this and then all the money and um expertise and training programs and equipment we're throwing at trying to get dudes wearing berets but like until someone figures out how to measure grit it's called induct and then I think that's the only word I could come up with right now. But it, yeah, yeah, fair enough. But um, but uh, I, I think it, deep down you know you're the right guy or not, and you can ask people over and over again how fast I need to run, how many pull-ups I need to do, like what's going to be on every day. But like if you come in knowing that it doesn't matter what I need to do, I'll get there. Okay, and then you're the right guy, Sean or gal, so to speak. So. Man, like you know, in closing, you know this. Uh, there's a lot of guys out there that have a lot more deployments than I do that I really looked up to, um, that helped kind of shape my military career. But at the end of the day, having a bias, having a bias for action, um served as a mechanism to validate a 20 year career in the military and just kind of really giving it all. Um, the other thing that I found that was really important was, um, the ability to have intense discourse, but still maintain really close relationships with people, um, as a professional, like the, the ability to, I think as a leader, one of the key attributes of a leader uh, is the ability to hold people accountable and still maintain close relationships. And that situation amidst all this chaos seemed to present itself like over and over and over again, um, especially with me and my squadron commander, because I, you know, I was... I found myself in a position where I was pushing the risk envelope regularly and then, you know, getting reeled back in. And I'm, you know, in hindsight, just really thankful for that. Um, so, you know, but, you know, there's, I think when it's all said and done, again, like relationships at the end of the day or everything. Like rule number one, always fucking look cool. Rule number two, like, don't be a dick, you know, if like, <laughs> re, re, like relationships are everything, man, you know? And like, I, they're the unique nature of the relationships that I had from back in 2015 and, uh, beyond my deployments back to 2012, um, really enabled and facilitated like our such a high degree of success for us feels like a good place then boys sean chris i really appreciate you guys coming on open invite anytime you want to come on talk about anything you want to you want to talk megan docker again guess what i got a platform for it we can talk about it i want to say thanks to everybody for uh, sticking with us through this one i know it's longer than what we normally do but i appreciate y'all keep following us on everything we do check out once follow us that's where we do everything on every single podcast player that's out there check out the youtube it's all good i want to say thanks boys i can't communicate enough
how much you've done for this career field by just sitting down and telling this story. I appreciate you. I'm in awe of you. You gentlemen are something to live up to.